Hello folks and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchromysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of the recently released A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of the book and my other works at the farm's official store which is the farmpodcast.store that is the farmpodcast all one word dot store and uh also the physical copies of a special relationship are now available on amazon for those of you who have been waiting for that and please consider also signing up for the farm's patron you get two additional full-length shows per month that's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content all right, guys, this is another installment in the farm's ongoing series exploring the world and a communist league, or Wackle as it's known around these parts. And that means the members of the Wackle panel are with me today. First up is my research partner, the great Keith Allen Dennis. Keith, thank you so much for joining us again today, sir. Thank you, Mr. Reclus. It's good to be with you here oh, at the I... end. <laughs> well, it's also only the beginning. <laughs> Also with us is Don Diligent, the farm's resident ex-cultist. Don, thank you for dropping by as well, sir. It is good to be back. This one ought to be a doozy. Oh, yes. Well, they all are. So this is the sixth installment in the Wackle series, plus two appendixes with Moss Robinson and John Brisson, the other Wackle panel members. In theory, you guys should know what Wackle is by now, but just in case you're just now tuning in, at its height during the 1970s and 80s, Wackel was the visible personification of the fascist international. It was a fascinating nexus of aging Nazi war criminals and budding neo-fascist terrorists, freedom fighters the world over, numerous drug and arms traffickers, the inevitable former military and intelligence officers, and a network of cults and secret societies that is far stranger than anything on Bill Cooper's Mystery Babylon broadcasts. It was quite a rogues gallery, to put it mildly. During the prior shows, we've covered some of the major players behind Wackle, such as the OUNB, that fabulous Ukrainian Nazi outfit, the China Lobby, the Unification Church, and most recently, the enigmatic Mexican secret society known as Los Tecos. The Tecos took us into the 1970s, and today we're going to wrap up that glorious decade and set the stage for the final push Wackle led against the forces of international communism, frequently personified by starving peasants in the developing world, during the Reagan years. But before getting to that, I need to set the table a bit. First, I'm going to bring up another group that's crucial to the Cold War era far right that we haven't discussed yet. It's known as Le Cirque and it was one of the only groups we've discussed that's still going strong in the 21st century. Now, during uh, its early years, Le Cirque was principally a Franco-German affair. It actually began as an offshoot of the Bilderberg Group in the mid-1950s. Um, it was designed essentially to help uh, with Franco-German reproachment after the two nations had been on the opposite side of two world wars. However, Le Cercle soon emerged as an independent body and as something of a counterbalance to the Protestant Anglo-American Dutch interests largely behind, uh, largely drawn from the financial sectors that dominated Bilderberg proper. Le Cercle has always been more Catholic and aristocratic with an especial reverence for the Holy Roman Empire. Indeed, Le Cercle's early vision for a united Europe largely consisted of a restoration of the Habsburg dynasty. 
Virtually all of its founders were members of either the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, more commonly known as the Knights of Malta, or Opus Dei. Now things began to change around 1968. It was during this year that Le Cercau first began to formally make alliances among the Anglo-American establishment. American and British members were finally admitted proper. This would have a profound influence on Le Cercau. By the 1980s, it appears to have been firmly in the control of a clique of British Tories, many of them veterans of the far-right Monday Club. Le Cercau would find itself at the forefront of the Thatcher Revolution in the UK and as a crucial auxilia in the Reagan Revolution in these United States. Now, these two elections dramatically changed the nature of the relationship between the Soviet Union and the West. Whereas policies of containment and detente had prevailed for much of the Cold War in the West, under Reagan and Thatcher, rollback, which shot nothing less than the destruction of the Soviet Union and international communism as a whole, gained preeminence. This resulted in many of the dirty wars across the developing world that Wackel assisted and which we shall dive into deeply during the final installment of this series. For now, however, it's important to note that something else very interesting also happened in 1968. Now, this is the year the strategy of tension formally began in Italy and soon spread to the, West, the rest of Western Europe. The strategy of tension was a concept conceived of by Italian neo-fascists during the mid-1960s, but with ample influence from the French counterinsurgency doctrine of Le Guerre Revolutionnaire. Now, at its most basic level, it held that terrorism committed by both the left and the right would have a destabilizing effect on democratic governments. This, in turn, would pave the way for a military coup and dictatorship, which, in turn, would create a climate that was more favorable for fascism to reemerge in. For a more in-depth account of this history, see my debut work, uh, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical. Now, the strategy of tension became very popular among what are commonly referred to as stay-behind armies. These institutions were set up by the U.S. and the U.K. across Western Europe at the onset of the Cold War. In theory, they would wage a guerrilla war against the Soviet army in the event of an invasion. In actuality, many of these armies appeared to have been involved in numerous criminal acts, including arms and drug trafficking, as well as terrorism, in an effort to ensure the hegemony of the U.S. and the U.K. in Western Europe. It didn't help that they were largely drawn from the ranks of various Nazis and fascists, both Neo and OG, as well as assorted religious fanatics and the mob. And incidentally, as works such as David Teacher's Rogue Agents and Jeffrey Bell, The Darkest Sides of Politics, Book 1, revealed, many of these stay-behind armies happen to be overseen by senior figures within the Circal, including many of the founding members. Were their ties to Wackel? Most assuredly and they were among the most notorious participants. Chief among them was fascist superstar Stefano Delachai, sometimes known as Shorty, other times as the Black Bombardier. But regardless of what handle you want to apply to him, Stefano got around. He helped launch the strategy of tension in Italy before touring the globe for the fascist cause. He rubbed elbows with key figures in the Belgian section of Le Cercal, with infamous Nazi commando Odo Scrozzini, with propaganda Dewey's Lucio Gelli, and with ample members of Wackel's Latin American chapter. So do keep him in mind with the history that we are about to unfold. All right, now that I've set the table, I'm going to turn it over to Keith and Don. Let's start by catching up on the Moonies. So, Don, the last time you were here, you talked about this address, 1028 Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C. It was in the downtown D.C. building that a number of anti-communist organizations had their offices. 
including the Moonies, uh, also the personification of the Unification Church. Tell us about the organization that moved into 1028 Connecticut around the time of the first Wackle Conference. And then take us up to 1970 when the Moonies came into their own as an anti-communist powerhouse, sir. Well, uh, to, to begin here, I think it's a good idea to review real quick the organizations that were in that building at 1028 Connecticut. So, uh, one, we have the Korean Cultural and Freedom Foundation, KCFF, which is the Moonies, of course. Two, we've got the personal office of Marx Lewis, chairman of the Council Against Communist Aggression, or CACA. Then we got three, the John Birch Society. That, that, well, that speaks for itself, doesn't it? Four, We've got the Security Consultants International. That was a spy and bugging business, electronics business. We got the Drug Enforcement Administration. That's number five. Then six, we've got the International Rescue Committee, where David Martin worked during the early 50s. Martin would become an advisor to Neil Salonen of the Moonies and a key member of the Vietnam lobby, which I'm going to get to here in a bit. And seven, the personal office, I should say last but not least, the personal office of Donald Miller, also connected directly to the Moonies. He ran a consulting firm in that office called the Associated Public Relations Counselors. And he also ran out of that same office the publication Freedom Facts, which was put out by the All-American Committee for Combating Communism, which Lev Dobryansky and the ABN Network was connected to. And finally, the new organization that I found that you uh, mentioned in your question, Recluse, or alluded to, number eight is the Committee for Peace with Freedom in Vietnam. So I'm going to talk about these guys or talk about this group. So uh, C, excuse me, CPFV, we'll use the acronym here, that was established in the fall of 1967 around the time of the first Wackle Conference. And I think I think the significance of the timing here has to do with the vital importance of the Vietnam lobby. That's a term that doesn't really get bandied about, certainly not like the China lobby. Now, what I find curious about the Vietnam lobby is that it has its beginnings coincidentally or not, with the beginnings of both the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, APACL, and the Moonies, the Unification Church. Back then, way back in the beginning, the Unification Church was known as the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity. So that's a mouthful of a misnomer, if I ever heard one. Now, all three that I just mentioned, 
okay, so we've got the Vietnam group and APACL and the and uh, and the Moonies. They were all officially started or founded in 1954, and uh, it was the Vietnam lobbies. Uh, you know, main front group or, or first front group uh, that was started. Uh, it was called the American Friends of Vietnam is the front group that I'm referring to. So we'll call that AFV. Now, as a slight digression, I want to share my little hypothesis about the phrasing friends or friends of blank, blank, blank that shows up in these anti-communist uh, front groups. I'll explain. Uh, you know, I, I've been just doing all this research, and it seems that with with time, you see the words friends all over the place. And these groups that have friends in them, quote unquote, they all seem to be connected to Wackle in some way. Okay, um, like for for an example, it, uh, we've got uh, the American Friends. Uh, for the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, AFABN. And then there's the American Friends of the Captive Nations. And, uh, and then lastly, uh, the Friends of Free Asia, or, you know, or FOFA, which, by the way, had its base of operations in the 1028 Connecticut building, right down in uh, downtown D.C., so, you know, it seems to me like there could be this little informal network that has been created that has been that's tied together by the fact that you've got the word friends in the name of the organization. Moreover, the Friends of Free Asia was run by Donald Miller, who I mentioned moments ago, uh, and FOFA also had Marvin Liebman on its board who, for those that follow this Wackle series, needs no introduction. And FOFA also brings in the personage of Lev Dobriansky of the ABN network. So if we add all this up, we're getting even a greater picture, it seems, of just how important that downtown D.C. building was to fighting the Cold War. Okay. So then what else happens in 1967? Well, besides the Wackles' first conference and the establishment of this Vietnam lobby organization. Well, that just so happens to be the year that 21-year-old Neil Salonen joined the Moonies. By the way, that's the same age I joined the Moonies, Moonies as well. Call that synchronistic or whatever. But anyway. Salonen joins the Moonies in 67. He moves right into the commune, as it were. And along with a few other Ivy League students or well-educated types that joined the Moonies that year, the American Mooney crew, quote unquote, started to get some traction finally in anti-communist ideology. Bohe Pock's influence at KCFF was finally being felt substantially amongst all of these fanatic Mooney types, you know, religious Mooney types, we'll call them. 
Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. The anti-communist emphasis emphasis in the the Moonies, you know, rel- religious group, you know, which was known as the Divine Principle, uh, that official religious doctrine of the Moonies, it was always there. But it wasn't until Salonen and Gary Jarman joined. Jarman, I spoke about at great lengths, as many will remember during the Mooney podcast. So it wasn't until these higher caliber Mooney recruits joined the ranks that the true agenda of the U.S. Moon organization got into gear. Uh, I hope I'm making my point here. If there's a question, guys, you know, tell me. So uh, moving ahead, this relatively small moon group with Salonen rising quickly in respect over the next two years. Now we come to the summer of 1969. That's when the American Moonies second anti-communist front group gets established, the Freedom Leadership Foundation, FLF, with Neil Salonen at the helm. Then at FLF's first major function, which came in the fall of 69, Salonen's cadre creates an alliance with the Vietnam Lobby Group called, excuse me, the Student Coordinating Committee for Peace with Freedom in Vietnam. And the other two groups that showed up for that event or function, their names are quite familiar to us, the Young Americans for Freedom and the Young Republicans. So these are the three organizations that made an alliance with the Moonies very quickly after FLF was established. Now, it's my guess here that the Student Coordinating Committee for Peace with Freedom in Vietnam, man, that's a mouthful. Anyway, if we take the better part of that name, Committee for Peace with Freedom in Vietnam, That's an exact match with the organization that set up shop in that 1028 Connecticut building. That surely can't be a coincidence. The group that got hooked up with Salonen and company must have been the student slash youth wing, quote unquote, of that organization. So if we conclude that, we're getting even a better indication now that the Vietnam lobby, the Moon Organization, <clears throat> and APACL, <clears throat> excuse me, all three seem to be inextricably linked somehow. Now, just the Moonies and APACL, like I've talked about before, once again, they all officially started in 54. So there seems to be this parallel development going on. It just seems unmistakable to me that we now have three peas in a pod, so to speak, or whatever the expression is. So this this is all information that just kind of came together for me, you know, during this recent time preparing for this podcast. So to begin finishing up my answer here, over in Japan during this same time period, we've been talking about the late 60s, we've got the creation of their first anti-communist group, 
that takes place uh, specifically in 68, and they're called the International Federation for Victory Over Communism, IFVOC, and that was run by Osami Kaboki, who, along with other Japanese Moonies, who joined throughout the early 60s, these Moonies had connections to the ultranational or patriotic societies, uh, particularly Kaboki. And it's in that network that we find the three World War II Class A war criminals. We're talking Yoshio Kodama, Ryoichi Sasakawa, and Nobusuke Kishe. And for those who remember from prior podcasts, I talked a lot about Kishi, particularly in our Moral Rearmament podcast. And Kishi, by 1970, was the most visible of the three in his open support or sponsorship of the Moon Organization. Just Sasha, to jump in, a, just to yeah, jump in a second, too, but um, also Kadama, and I believe the other two were also pretty senior um, Yakuza figures as well, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah so I mean, just to give you guys some perspective, that kind of links in also to sort of the organized crime networks and what have you as well. Yeah. No, it's not Yakuza. It's patriotic societies, okay? <laughs> you're right. Yeah, 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 you're right. They're they're just you know social clubs for um you know young men um just you know to get together and you know cut off the tips of their fingers and that types of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Kodama, we never really saw his face. I mean, he was behind the black curtain, as as it's called. Uh, so we still don't have any firm evidence that any money changed hands directly from Kodama, you know, dropping that money into Koboki's lap. But we certainly have enough to go on to, to be able to speculate that that probably did happen, like I say, behind closed doors, behind this black curtain. So anyway, moving on, um, you know, we don't want to forget about Korea and all this, too. I mean, in terms of what anti-communist work is, is taking place at that particular moment in Korea. I mean, that's where the Moonies originate from, you know, after all. Uh, and it was there that the APACL Freedom Center, uh, you know, that later segues into becoming the international headquarters for uh, WACL, you know, for WACL education, quote unquote. And we know that the Moon Organization had its inroads into that infrastructure, as I've outlined or speculated on previously. So to finally finish up my answer here, in 1970, all three Mooney anti-communist operations in the U.S., Korea, and Japan come together in Tokyo, where Kaboki and his troops are the star of the show. And this the fourth annual Wackle Conference becomes the coming out party for Moon's anti-communist agenda. And with that, I'll throw it back to you, Recluse, unless you guys got another uh, comment or question or whatever. Yeah, I got a couple little things to throw in there. Um, that was uh, <clears throat> the biggest Wackle Conference ever to happen. And it's because of the mass politics of of that victory over communism group. I mean, they just had hundreds of thousands of students and, and agitators 
you know, on the streets. And that's the one where um, Sasakawa gives like a keynote address and he's like, I know there's some communist friendly people in here and I'm not mad at you. It's okay. You know, it's, it'd be like saying a, a doctor is mad at a patient. No, you, you do, you do have a disease and we're here to help you with that. And, and if, uh, if the patient resists treatment, well, we'll have, we have other, other means we can go into, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you all what, what those are. And, uh, quite a, quite a, a threatening statement to give to this whole, you know, group. <laughs> uh, also Juanita Castro, I, I guess the sister or some relative of, of, uh, of the Cuban dictator gave a, a speech at that conference as well. So, you know, Keith, I'm going to add on something to that, that, that just came to me now. I mean, I've already, I've always known this, but it, it just struck me as you were talking about Sasakawa explaining about the, the, the doctor uh, disease dynamic. When when Moon jumped over to the States in the 70s, which, of course, I'm going to be talking about here later, he used that that same story, quote unquote. He talked about how America had a disease and that he was the doctor with the cure, which makes me Mm. think that he got it from Sasakawa, quite possibly. Yeah. Now, also that um, the school you were talking about in South Korea, Don, um, that uh, what was it? The Wackle School, a- APACL Freedom Center. Okay, now that was the one that was uh, connected to the one that the Institute for American Strategy set up in um, what was it, Boston, Virginia, right? The Freedoms uh, Studies Center. Well, yeah. yes. Uh, when when you go through a lot of uh, documents that that come out of these archives, you as as Keith well knows. You, you start realizing uh, after a while that th- there, there's a, a, a complete overlap with the curriculum that would get uh, instituted, you know, at, at that freedom school uh, at Boston, Virginia, uh, yes. that got started in 66, uh, to be exact, and, and the curriculum that had already gotten its footing at the APACL Freedom Center uh, a few years preceding that. So, yeah, there's no there's no doubt that the, these guys are are working um, in concert with each other. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I wanted to uh, point that out because one of the things we've been kind of uncovering in some of our research is that there really was this sort of, uh, you know, international network of these, you know, I guess, political warfare um, academies that were essentially being used to turn out anti-communist cadres uh of course the institute for american strategy that sponsored the freedom studies uh center was essentially the kind of inner body of the american security council which we talked about a little bit in an earlier installment of this uh series uh it had a lot of vips connected to the asc and really the american chapter of wackle and a lot of other major far-right bodies um another potential academy that may have had some ties as well was the uh, the rather infamous political warfare cadre center. I think that's what it was called in Taiwan um, that Ray S. Klein had helped reorganize around uh, 1958, 1959. Uh, political Klein. warfare cadres academy. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, 
Of course, Klein would later become a big figure in Wackel and also in the American Security Council. Um, I suspect they probably also had ties to this whole network, though I haven't found the smoking gun to that uh, so much as we do have with um, the IAS's Freedom Study Centers and the APACL one in South Korea. But uh, it is very interesting and a very uh, little remarked upon aspect of this uh, curious history. Yeah, I want to keep the, the ball moving, but you... you uh... I can't resist. We just got some stuff for free uh, from the Hoover Institution uh, not too long ago. Uh, a bunch of David Rao materials relating to the Korean Cultural Freedom Foundation and the APACL Freedom Center. <clears throat> and the KCFF was raising funds in the name of the Freedom Center in the United States. And it was causing some uh, tension between these two groups. Uh, that's one thing. Second thing is David Rao, professor of political science he was, um, was instrumental in helping develop the curriculum for the Freedom Center. And he's being funded by the Realm Foundation, R-E-L-M, which if you, I, I'll just invite your listeners to Google that, Realm Foundation. It comes up in the context of a uh, kind of libertarian economics, you know, your Hayek, your uh, your Austrian school, Montpeller and neoliberal types, right? Um, th- that's, that's often uh, associated with the Realm Foundation, but they were funding uh, David Rao's efforts to create the curriculum for the Freedom Center. And David Rao was also heavily involved in developing the curriculum and lecturing for the Freedom Studies Center in America, the Institute of American Strategy. And if you look, there's always this talk about the ASC is really behind all this stuff, but you never really see it um, spelled out. But when you look at the Institute for American Strategy materials, it's got all of their foreign correspondent or their foreign affiliates, and it's everybody. It's APACL, it's the ABN, it's Willoughby's uh, International Committee for the Defense of Christian Civilization. It's these Knights of Malta guys and out of Malta, you know, it's like all these different international anti-communist groups that we've we've talked about from from the early days, including, I think, even the CIA, DC, the Latin American one. They're all listed. And when you look at that, it's like, wow, this was like a parallel Wackle that was already going before Wackle started. If you look, you know, if you think about it in terms of the Institute for American Strategy. But anyway, I don't want to get us too far afield, but you asked. So uh, fresh, fresh material. The IAS stuff came from the um, Francis McNamara collection at uh, George Mason University. I've been wanting to get my hands on that curriculum uh, for both the Freedom Study Center and the IAS school for a long time. And now I can see what they're doing. So you were saying. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's just it's absolutely pivotal. And I mean, a lot of this also, you know, ties into really the rise of conspiratainment. I mean, one of the people linked to these freedom study schools, for instance, was Edward S. Butler, um, who famously had the uh, did debate in New Orleans with Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, where Oswald, uh, it was a radio interview where Oswald had famously proclaimed himself to be a communist. Uh, Butler was a very fascinating guy. He had uh, he was an early member of the John Birch Society. Uh, he 
had done a lot to spread some of the early, you know, what we would now think of as Alex Jones type conspiracy tropes. Uh, but he was also tied in with this strange school in the IAS, uh, the American Security Council, and uh, naturally he'd been a psychological warfare officer in the military. Prior Is that to- the guy that wrote the thing about brainwashing? Uh, no, that was something Hunter, if I remember correctly. Oh. Um, but yeah, it's kind of in that same milieu though. But yeah, there's, um, a lot of interesting characters tied in with all of this, but, um, yes, to get us back on point. Okay, Keith. So we talked in the previous Wackle episode about how the Americans reluctant to formally join APACL and later Wackle. But that changed in 1970. We talked a little here and there about the American Council for World Freedom, but we finally arrived at the period of time in which Wackle finally got its long sought after U.S. chapter. So it's time to go into that with some depth. Tell us about the ACWF and why they, what they were up to in the U.S. and about their somewhat short time in the U.S. Wackle as the U.S. Wackle representatives. Yeah. So, um, Mr. Don Diligence talking about all these groups that are located out of a building, and the ACWF is a bunch of groups that are operating out of a supergroup. Walter Judd, who was on the early board, called the ACWF an organization of organizations. So, and uh, I'll, you know, in the previous episodes, I won't go into it, but some of the the smarter guys like Rao and Liebman were long dubious about Wackle being a thing to begin with, definitely about uh, having their doubts about the U.S. being formally involved. And uh, But against their protest, the, the uh, ACWF joined Wackle. Indeed, they were present as observers at the 1970 conference we just talked about. And then at their next executive board meeting, they voted to join. And David Rao in private correspondence said, look, if they do that, that's fine. I'll be outvoted, but I'm also going to get out of the way and you're not putting my name on it. Which is sounds really cool of him and like principled, but he he was working with them the whole time. He just didn't want his name on the letterhead. um, Same with Liebman. So cool. Um, Yeah, so you can see on the uh, on their on their letterhead, um, all these names from all these different organizations, and I'll just get into a few of them. Um, <clears throat> Lee Edwards, uh, Young Americans for Freedom guy, he's kind of starting it. Him and Fred Schlafly, uh, who, if that name sounds familiar, his much more famous wife, Phyllis Schlafly, founder of the Women Against Women's Rights movement uh, in the United States helped uh, tank the Equal Rights Amendment and uh, make sure men still get paid more than women to this day. I mean, we all have her to thank for that. There's a great uh, podcast. My favorite, other than this one, of course, for 2020 is Behind the Bastards with uh, Robert Evans, and he did a two-part thing about Phyllis Schlafly. Anyway, her husband, uh, Fred. It's a Dame of Malta, too. Uh, Dame of Malta, John Birch Society, which she didn't want to admit for a long time, but then she did, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so anyway, um, Goldwater Girl. So her husband, uh, Fred Schlafly, and Lee Edwards are probably the only two people you could say that this was like their day job. Everybody else was kind of like a side project, and they had their other things going on. Uh, so who else was on it? We got 
David Rao, like I talked about, although he didn't want his name on it. We got Stefan Pasoni, who we talked about. Dobriansky, who we've talked about. Don't need to go into those guys too much at this point. Same, same with uh, Walter Judd and Walter Dushnik, who we've talked about. And then uh, Don talked about Marks Lewis of the Kaka group. Um, first real post-Korean war, a Korea lobby. Uh, part of that whole freedom school business we were just talking about. Um, who else? Oh, the legendary former communist, anti-communist activist uh, Herbert Philbrick is on there. This is the guy that uh, Don had said Neil Salonen thanked personally at some banquet or something for helping him get his start. And there's That's Fred right. Schwartz. Yeah. So uh, there's this Fred Schwartz, the founder of the Christian anti-communist crusade is there. Um, that's a group we haven't really talked about and I won't really get into it too much, but this is an Australian guy that started doing, uh, speaking tours, uh, for like just kind of pumping up this early version of what today is called Christian nationalism, Christo-fascism, you could even call it. Uh, he wrote a, a book that was pretty popular in the, in its day called, you can trust a communist to be a communist. And, uh, it's like, I see what you did there. Um, and then there's a couple of Jesuit priests, Daniel Leones or Lyons and Raymond de Jaeger. And this goes to that um, Vietnam lobby thing that uh, Don was talking about a minute ago. Uh, Leons was funded by Patrick Frawley of the Chick's Safety Razor fame. Um, and that guy, Frawley, was a big funder of far right causes and figures during that period. And Leon's is talked about in William Turner's uh, Power on the Right book, talking about how he, uh, about how the Jews control the media and the entertainment industry, and and those white colonists in Africa had earned the right to hang on to them, and and he was a member of a group called the Free Pacific Association, and so was Father Raymond D. Yeager. Uh, who was himself a former missionary and an advisor to No Ngo Dinh Diem, the French-leaning Catholic leader of South Vietnam, who got assassinated. Um, and I think it was 63. So those guys are both interesting because they're ACWF guys, but they're they're like Vietnam experts, and they were advocates of something called uh, Vietnamization. I think it was that basically like we need to keep the war going. We need to you know, don't let one domino fall, but we need to pump up the local forces and have them take a greater share in defending their own countries against communism. And, uh, yeah, so those guys were, it was kind of like a pro KMT lobby. They wanted a, a, an invasion of mainland China, but again, that, that involved local fighters taking up the cause. So, it, this ACWF uh, was definitely part of the the pro-Vietnam War lobby. And um, in a new book that's come out, well, four years ago, I think, um, Revolutionaries for the Right by Kyle Burke, he talks about ACWF being, it's like kind of trying to plug the hole, like public support for the role in Vietnam is, is eroding and uh, there's kind of a, it's not going anywhere, and there's a danger of us losing the will to fight, which is going to make us lose the war. And they were trying to do what they could to stop that. Um, 
But uh, speaking of Vietnam, early ACWF also had on its board a Mr. Reed Irvine. This is a legend in conservative media. He had just started his accuracy in media organization um, in 69, and it was supposed to counter liberal media bias and kind of boost conservative voices in the news media. And he kind of pioneered the concept of putting fake news into the media stream while complaining about fake news. Uh, If that sounds familiar, here at the end of the world, we know who to thank. He kind of made the mold that out of which would later crawl the likes of Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh. Um, And he just kind of would just pump up these things that in the moment really helped as GW would say, catapult the propaganda, but in hindsight turned out to be like dead wrong, like Vietnam War was good. No, it wasn't. Agent Orange, not so bad. Yes, it was. Uh, The El Mozote massacre in El Salvador 10 years later was overblown by the liberal media. It wasn't. Waterboarding is not torture. It is. You know, climate change is fake. And even this year in 2020, uh, early this year, they said coronavirus was bunch of fake news and we see how that turned out so um uh reverend moon gave reed irvine a, an award sometime in the 80s and 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 i'm sure he deserved it but anyway then there's john fisher <laughs> of the american security council uh you could kind of say that the american wackle constituency was like the marriage of the american security council and young americans for freedom and the new right more broadly and uh the asc kind of represented the old right and as for the new right, I don't know what to say about them, except, you know, for, for the difference as far as it goes, except they're like, you know, they're younger, more technically adept and adaptable. But you scratch the new right's shiny surface and the old right is right there underneath it. Indeed, I will say that by the end of the 70s, we'll get into it in a little bit. Uh, but the the old right liberty lobby pretty much took over the American Wackle chapter. And for a minute. The whole world anti-communist league itself in the person of Roger Pearson, but we'll we'll talk about him in a little bit. Um, so then, finally, I guess I want to get into one other name on there. This just this just to give you the cast of characters. This isn't even everybody, but some of the more interesting ones on here. Okay, I've picked out is uh, the lady Malcolm Douglas Hamilton was on the early board. I don't know if that name rings a bell to either one of you guys. Yeah, I've uh, seen her. Yeah. yeah. She was in, what was it, the Scot- was it the Scottish League? Um, shoot, I can't remember the rest of it. But, um, yeah, that was like one of the big kind of UK anti-communist organizations. I think that might have been one of the ones that Boney Fuller had some kind of connection with, if I'm not mistaken. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, there's a rumor on the internet that I think maybe came from Russ Ballant's old right, new right in the Republican Party. I may be wrong, uh, saying that uh, she was Lord Douglas Hamilton. What? She was involved in Tessa's flight or something to that effect. Yeah, like like her husband, Lord Malcolm Douglas Hamilton, his brother had been the host of, you know, of Rudolf Hess when he made his dumb flight to the UK during you know World War II. Um, don't know if that's true. Don't care. But her husband was part of that Cliveden kind of pro Hitler, pro appeasement set, you know. Um, but 
so that's a rumor. But what I can tell you is that when uh, the Lord and Lady moved to the U.S. in the 60s, they promptly started the first American chapter of something called the International Association for the Advancement of Eugenics and Ethnology or Ethnology and Eugenics in the U.S. Um, that would be the group that is a big part of the subject of uh, the funding of scientific racism book, which is a gross book, but I have it um, started so by Robert. Is that tied into the Pioneer Fund then? Absolutely. Robert Geyer, Geyer uh, who was in one, in one of those many kind of chivalric hospitalier Knights of Malta orders, but not the shick shinny one. He apparently didn't like them, but yes, uh, his widow, the lady, was on the board of the new ACWF as well as the ASC and the Institute for American Strategy. And she started this other group called the Committee to Unite America, which was like supposed to uphold the moral fabric of the United States and fight against decadence and moral decline and women showing too much ankle and all that. And uh, that had Walter Judd on it and Albert uh, Wiedemeyer was on it and Edward Teller, the nuclear physicist, were all about all in part of this this committee for good morals, you know, so that was her side project and eugenics. Um, so, <laughs> so that's a little cast of characters. Uh, there, there hasn't been a whole lot of writing on the ACWF. Definitely inside the league is, is, is the most that book um, revolutionaries for the right that I just mentioned is one of, is probably the most writing about that group since inside the league. Um, and it's just kind of invisible uh, otherwise. But if you look, they did do stuff in the United States besides, you know, just be the glove for Wackle in the U.S. They a lot of domestic uh, hawkish military industrial complex type lobbying, like, you know, uh, the against the Panama Canal Treaty, against arms control treaties. And they would kind of hold all these conferences holding space for all these different conservative organizations and like hawkish foreign policy stuff. And we'll get into some of them in a minute, but, uh, but anyway, so when they joined Wackle, um, Rao and Judd are, are writing each other back and forth talking about, <clears throat> you know, this is like, this is piddly. This is dumb. Why, why is this a thing? Because they're talking about these, uh, little chapters from this country and that, that are, they're, they're really trying to lean on the United States. They always wanted the United States in on it because they always thought they were going to get all this money from the Yankees if they could just get them into Wackle. And so as soon as they join, here they are, you know, begging for money. So-and-so from this little country can't make plane tickets. Can you help them out? And Judd and Rao are like, if these guys can't even spring for plane tickets and, and hotel reservations for some conference. How are they going to seriously help us in this worldwide struggle against communism? And uh, so uh, the Andersons talk about APAC will be like this benign and regional paper tiger. That's the quote of what they called APAC. And some critics inside and outside the league thought the same thing about the world anti-communist league. But then on the other side of it, it's a world league and they got chapters all over the world and they don't, they're not all necessarily telling Walter Judd what they're doing. I mean, if you look at the, the portrait of a black terrorist, uh, 
the biography of uh, Stefano Delacai, it says that Wackel started cutting checks to Adjunta Press as soon as they got going, right? And then you read about them being involved with um, Scorzani's Paladin Group from like around 1970. So it's like nobody's, you know, telling Rao, hey, this is what we're doing, you know, don't tell anyone. So it's like they're kind of ineffectual and um, geriatric, and it's just like a bigger version of the same old fiefdom of Ku Ching Kang and his Asian despots. But it's also doing, it's, it's getting going, you know. So, but as for what they did in this kind of four-year period, you know, uh, that they were in it, because they were out by, it was like 71 to 75, and they're, they're out. Um, and it's kind of like they took the, you know, we were talking about in the, one of the, the last episode about the techos and how like secret societies and power and how the hand of power kind of goes up the bum of this puppet or that puppet, like a hand going into a glove and it moves on when the mission's accomplished. Well, it's like ACWF sort of took the threads spun by APACL in the fifties and sixties and knitted them into this glove that the Reagan administration would really use to great effect in the eighties. Right. Um, they kind of kept it, kept it going long enough for it to become Singlaub's like vehicle for him to, you know, do his thing with. Right. Um, and I don't know that any of these guys had the foresight to see it that way when they were kind of struggling about paying for conference bills and stuff like that, but that's what they were doing. So this whole 70s period is like they're building it. Wackle's trying to build itself up. ACWF is trying to build itself up and build Wackle up. And there's all these scandals and splits and schisms. And in the end, it still was, you know, a success. And uh, its success was also kind of its undoing in a way. But we can get into that in the next episode. All right. I think. A good little little primer on on the American Wackle guys for now. That was beautiful, man. All right. Now, Don, in the early 1970s, Sun Ming Moon moved to the United States and started to tour all around the country with his message for America, which included a lot of anti-communist rhetoric. Detail us on how the quote-unquote Moon movement was furthering the agenda of Wackle in uh, that period. Well... Uh, the best way uh, to start answering that question, I think, uh, is to talk about uh, what was called the International One World Crusade, IOWC. So Moon moves to the States in December 71. And and sure, I'm giving a little, you know, lead up. And shortly after the turn of the year, he told Young Un Kim and Sung Chul Kim, a.k.a. David Kim, who our faithful listeners know by now, they are arguably the two most important Koreans that hooked up with Sun Myung Moon in the early 50s, uh, in Korea, of course. So in 72, the these two Kims, quote-unquote, they... <clears throat> they start touring around the country with a large band 
of full-time Moonies in tow in buses and vans going from city to city. And it was called the International One World Crusade. And its purpose, quote-unquote, was to, an emphasis on quote-unquote here, was to prepare Americans for the coming of the prophet, the Korean prophet, Sun Myung Moon, the man who came to save America. I mean, Christ. No, no pun intended. Uh, th those early Moonies weren't even allowed to tell the masses that Moon was the Messiah. He was a John the Baptist figure, a prophet, preparing the way for the Lord. Sorry, guys. Being an ex-Mooney, sometimes I get kind of worked up about all this stuff. But anyway, uh, getting getting back to my answer here. So, <laughs> anyway, hey, look it. It comes with the territory. You know, when you when you when you get an ex-Mooney on, you know, you never know what little digression is going to come about, right? So, uh, so I'm anyway, I'm here for it, man. I'm here for all of it. Please yeah, continue. yeah, no, yeah. It's fascinating. no, no I, I love you guys. I mean, seriously. So, um, so I should digress, digress slightly here because it's important to understand also something else that leads up to this IOWC. So, I already mentioned that Mo that Moon moved to the states at the end of '71, but there was approximately a 12-year period of U.S. Mooney activity leading up to Moon's arrival. Young Un Kim and David Kim had come to the U.S. back in 59 for the purpose of establishing Moon's operation in America. By 61, Bohi Pak shows up and starts to incorporate some quote-unquote church activity to go along with his official Korean diplomat duties as an attache at the Korean embassy in Washington. And that's where KCFF was, right? And then Song Ikche, a.k.a. Papa Sunche, who our listeners, once again, they're going to know him from our earlier talks, you know, particularly MRA. He arrives in the United States in 65. Now, the reason I'm digressing here with this uh, is because all four of these Koreans had their own self-styled Mooney recruiting process for Westerners, trying to get people, young people, to believe that Moon was the second coming of Jesus. They each had their own uh, little uh, version or slightly different version of church doctrine. In other words, they were all trying to get Westerners to buy into the Moon is the Messiah meme with their own unique interpretation of Moon's message, this revelation from God that Sun Myung Moon brought to the earth as a young man, and Jesus is there in heaven speaking to Moon and asking Moon to continue his mission. And here I go again about Durant. Okay, all right, settle down here. All right, <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry guys. So it's like a bunch of stuff to st throw at the wall and see what sticks. You want UFOs? We got UFOs. You want like uh, spirit channeling, new age stuff? We got that too. Just just as long as it's, yeah. Anyway, you were saying. <laughs> yeah, I know. Anyway, so at, le at least I'm proving my my ex Mooney status by at least getting worked up over this stuff. 
right? So, so anyway, getting back to the early 70s and IOWC. So the reason for my transgression uh, is this is the very moment, you know, Moon has moved to the States. Now it's 1972. It's the very moment in the progression of Moon's operation uh, in the States now where Moon himself takes all four of these, let's call them Mooney subgroups, and he meshes them all together into one coherent, one cohesive organization so that the, the Moonies can now be more easily mobilized by Moon himself. So IOWC, with Young Un Kim and David Kim as its leaders, uh, was therefore a significant development because it was the first Mooney front group that was established after unifying, literally unifying, Moon's movement in America. I, I, I hope I'm making good sense here, okay? And not to be overlooked, the International One World Crusade is clearly a takeoff from the Crusades of Frank Buckman and his moral rearmament. The parallels are obvious. So I, I strongly encourage listeners to go back to our moral rearmament podcast to flesh out their understanding there. Okay. So some listeners might be wondering at this point, okay, what does IOWC have to do with Wackel? Fair question. Well, to answer that effectively, one needs to realize here to be a Mooney in America in those President Nixon, Gerald Ford years meant that you had to be willing to wear many different hats, do whatever it took to do the Messiah's will, quote unquote. Moon was the second coming of Christ to me. I joined the Moonies in the late 70s and Moon was the Messiah to all those other Moonies as well. And we all knew the anti-communist message of Moon, like the back of our hands. Young Un Kim, David Kim, Bohe Pak, Papa Sun Che, all the Moonies from Japan and Europe that Moon shipped in to the U.S. during that time, all those Moonies were being told by Moon that America needs to forgive Nixon for his Watergate transgressions. The Moonies are going from city to city in vans and buses, sleeping in those vans and buses, no less, uh, as I was kind of saying earlier. And they were stirring the pot of anti-communist sentiment, as I was alluding to, that the anti-communists were those, e those evil Soviets, those evil Russians, bringing immorality and corruption to our country, free sex, drug addiction. Moon basically said that it was a fifth column that had to be destroyed at any cost. I, I think uh, our listeners are, are getting the picture here. All right, so what's the connection then? What's the connection between IOWC and Wackel? Simply put, the fervor of Moon's message that the IOWC was bringing to city after city during the early to mid-70s 
That message with its strong anti-communist overtones, Moon's crusade, in other words, it aroused within many young people and others a pro-war stance towards Vietnam. Remember, the Vietnam War is still going on, okay, during that time. And as I've already outlined, Neil Salonen and FLF with Bohe Pak right there with his support were the spearhead for supporting the Vietnam lobby and its pro-war stance. Furthermore, all those anti-communist oriented Moonies wearing all these different hats, as I was saying, they were an integral part of IOWC, okay, because of the way things were set up. So IOWC, you know, by definition through this explanation, served the purposes of the Vietnam lobby and quite effectively, actually. And and when we realized that the Vietnam lobby was inextricably linked to WACL and its overall agenda, all this dot connecting allows us to get a really good feel for how the Moon organization was promoting the aims of WACL during the early to mid-70s. And uh, with that, I, I guess I covered that answer about as well as I could, unless you guys have a question or a comment. Actually, uh, uh, I do, if that's okay. Oh, go for it, Keith. I forgot, very important, I forgot to mention that Neil Salonen was one of the founder, you know, founding members of the American Council for World Freedom. That right. was uh, an important oversight there, very important. So there's the Moonies sitting there at the table with Fred Schwartz and these other Catholic people, and and it's all right with them. The other thing I wanted to mention, you're talking about these different groups that all kind of had a different spin and eventually they are unified by the unification church. Um, yeah, this is so crazy and so important. I, I just went and got my computer and I looked this up cause I wanted to read it into the record on, uh, the historia discordia.com website. Um, there's an article called Fred Crisman and the Servants of Awareness. And Fred Crisman was one of these JFK slash UFO guys that like Peter Lavenda talks about in the Sinister Forces. He and, was also uh, a, a wandering bishop as well. <laughs> wandering bishop. Yep. And uh, after all of that JFK stuff dies down, he goes and he kind of takes over this UFO channeling cult called the Servants of Awareness. And he apparently is referring to it. Uh, in his uh, his interviews with Jim Garrison. So they'd have these little sessions where the faithful in the in the, the Space Brother cult would ask the, the channeler, the voice of awareness in this case, about this thing and that thing. And of course, you can look up, they have all their stuff online. And all my, my favorite thing to do is you, when you find the channeled collections of some ufo cult is available online you just do a keyword search for jews and then here it comes <laughs> but anyway separate separate story um so somebody asked this disembodied space alien guy about the unification church in like 76 um question i'd like to ask awareness about these spiritual groups that are financed and i believe hypnotized on some level by the money changers 
three women I know are involved in such, and I believe they're being held in some level of mind control that is not understood. Dot, 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 dot. The answer comes back. This awareness indicates the Reverend Moon is being used by, as a tool by the CIA. This awareness indicates the Reverend Moon as presently known in reality is not the Reverend Moon he claims himself to be. This awareness indicates the original Reverend Moon is now deceased. And this entity, as the one who took on the name for purposes of bringing about a religious following, a religious order to South Korea, working closely with the government there and the CIA in order to assist in stabilizing the nation through certain religious organizations. And then the punchline, <clears throat> this awareness suggests that the information gathered from this and other sources used by the CIA then began to be transferred into other areas for other depth psychology researches and has been carried on relating unto this since that time. This awareness indicates the work of the CIA in connection with the entity who refers to himself as Reverend Moon as that which was successful in South Korea in bringing about the desired stability and the experiment then was moved to the United States. Translation, please. <laughs> I skipped some stuff. Basically, it's a CIA I'm tool sorry. for stabilizing the Korean government through certain religious organizations and mind control and depth psychology stuff. And it worked really well in Korea, so we moved it over here to the United States. Well, that's about <laughs> as good of a translation uh, as I suppose we can come it, up with. Yeah, except that it's coming from like a UFO channeling cult guy that's speaking for like the Space Brothers. That's the weird part, right? Anyway, sorry for the digression, but like this new age stuff, it, boy, it's it's fishy. Anyway. Well, yeah. I'm so, I'm sorry. I'm just going to uh, continue on just slightly, Keith, and huh. and say that it's not it's not all that strange when when you look at what was going on in Young Un Kim's group all throughout the 60s. I mean, I'll just cite you one quick example. So this British guy who's got connections galore with intelligence, uh, we won't go into those details, but he shows up on the scene in 64. His name is Anthony Brook, the, yeah. the, the, the Raja of Sarawak. The white okay. Raja. The last yeah. white Raja or something like that. Yeah, white Raja of Sarawak, yes. So anyway, he meets Young Un Kim's group uh, right there at the end of 63, beginning of 64. <clears throat> and the next thing you know, he's on a plane and he's talking to Moon's group over in Seoul, Korea. And he's, and he's talking about the Astral Command. Yeah, the Ashtar Ash, uh, Ashtar Command, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, yeah, yeah, Freudian slip, Astral. Either way, Astral Command, Ashtar Command. <laughs> it's, in one sense, it's all the same to me, like Astral Projection. Yeah. And I'm sorry, since I'm on a roll, a, a lot of those early Moonies, they thought that they were Astral Projecting. I guess that's why Astral came to my brain. They thought they were astral projecting, going to where Moon actually was, having conversations with Moon face to face during that time. And I mean, that's what they call the spirit world, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I'm still trying to wrap my brains around the 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 occultishness of Young Un Kim's group, which is totally separate from this entire anti 
communist, uh, you know, parapolitical uh, agenda and and focus that we're dealing with in, in this series. So anyway, enough enough of my rant there. You know, the levels of separation are never that extreme. Since uh, Keith kind of brought it up, I can't uh, I can't uh, hold off the temptation to bring up uh, the Discordian Society. Um, it was allegedly founded in either 1958 or 1959 by Greg Hill and Carrie Thornley. Um, of course, we get back to that pivotal year uh, time frame, 58, 59, when we saw a lot of these anti-communist organizations like the Liberty Lobby and the John Birch Society and the Institute for American Strategy, uh, the Northern League, I think, uh, a lot of these other groups uh, really kind of sprang to life, so to speak. Um, and then in the pivotal year of 1968, which is a war, was when the strategy of tension got going. Um, the Discordian Society launched Operation Mindfuck, uh, which has plagued conspiracy circles for decades ever since. Really, a lot of the whole modern mythos uh, surrounding the Bavarian Illuminati go back to Operation Mindfuck. Um, and it's interesting, of course, Carrie Thornley is one of just the most enigmatic individuals of the 20th century. Um, he played a huge role, obviously, in setting up the counterculture, uh, but he was also linked into the Kennedy assassination. Uh, he was in New Orleans during the early 60s and that whole kind of milieu. Um, he did meet Guy Bannister at least once. There's some dispute as to how connected they were. Bannister was actually a member of one of the early uh, Latin American um, anti-communist organizations. It was the, uh, what was it, the uh, Anti-Communist League of the Caribbean or something to that effect, uh, which E. Howard Hunt uh, had allegedly set up. Uh, of course, E. Howard Hunt uh, was a guy that Thornley would later claim that he had been in contact with in New Orleans as well. Um, and another <clears throat> early member of the Discordian Society from New Orleans was uh, Slim Brooks. Slim uh, was most likely Jerry Miller Brooks, I believe, who uh, was quite a prominent member of the Minutemen, uh, the mm. first major post-war uh, militia group, um, which had essentially been taken over by some of these Christian identity sects. But uh, it's another topic. But uh, Slim Brooks, Discordian Minutemen. Um, Thornley also knew some other Minute Men, or at least one Minute Woman, uh, Becky G uh, Glazer, I believe her name was, who had been involved in arms trafficking for the Minute Men during the early 60s. Uh, so, yeah. The new Rice, the New Age, and the Republican Party. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, then, of course, Thornley <laughs> also knew uh, David Ferry, who he'd encountered at least once. Ferry was, uh, among other things, also a wandering bishop. He was ordained by a man named Christopher Maria Stanley, uh, who had also ordained Jack S. Martin, another one of the people working with Guy Bannister, and a fellow wandering bishop. Uh, Stanley was a bishop of uh, the American Orthodox Catholic Church, which Peter Lavenda would later... Um, <laughs> become a member of. Uh, of course, Lavenda is widely believed to be the author of Sinister, or uh, the Simon Necronomicon, and of course also Sinister Forces. And Stanley would also ordain bishops who would help set up the Moorish Orthodox Church, uh, which Peter Lamborn Wilson, a.k.a. Hakim Bey, was an early founder of as well. So, um, yeah, you can Nambla kind of see... Too? I thought that guy started Nambla, too, but... Yes, 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 he did, and also the temporary <laughs> autonomous. Um, oh, 
And of course, David Ferry was an arch pedophile. There's, you know, some evidence that that kind of thing, you know, went on in these wandering bishop circles. Uh, going back to one of the first major wandering bishops, C.W. Ledbetter. <clears throat> cough, cough. Oh wait, I'm sorry. It was it was Plato. It was Plato, the philosopher. That's who started Nambla. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, goes back anyway yeah but, that, great? that was that was quite a little uh you just rattle all that off yeah yeah well it's also going to be in the book that i'm working on too so it's been on my mind lately but yeah just to sort of show you guys you know i mean there's also this just weird kind of counterculture angle to it because you had people like banisters who were tied into these kind of early proto incarnations with wackle who happened to know people like carrie thornley and you know was uh, employing a lot of these various wandering bishops who show up in all of this other strange new age ufo occult stuff uh, and I didn't even mention the Process Church of the Final Judgment. They were lurking around there in that whole milieu in Orleans as well. Um, some Discordians knew them, too. And so did some Minutemen. In fact, a, uh, at least one Minuteman that I know of ended up in the Process Church. So, yeah. All right, so let's get things back on track now, shall we? <laughs> yeah, what a, what a witch's brew with the, all the ingredients we just put into that pot. Jeez. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, I wanted to emphasize all the weird cults and secret societies in the uh, kind of broader Wackle network, and that just kind of gives you guys an idea of uh, what was lurking around there. So, Keith, by the middle of the decade uh, of the 1970s, the ACWF had formally taken its leave from Wackle due to the controversy surrounding the good old Tecos, which we got into a bit in the last show. But their involvement with with the Wackle Chiefs continued in spite of their nominal break with the league. I'd like you to get into how the relationship continued and how it branched out into other forms of cooperation with the radical Latin American rightists. One of those relationships got Mr. Marvin Liebman into some hot wonder, didn't it? Yeah, but I mean, how am I going to follow that whole rant you just did? I mean, this is like boring. Oh, this conference that they had and like, man, you, that was a. Uh... I'm gonna have oh, to come on, we're going to get into, like, Pinochet, man. I mean, we're going to talk about, like, torture chambers, and it's going to be great, man. We're going to have to Nazi it up here, which we're we're going to do, just just to keep up with the, the production values you're bringing to the table here. So Make sure it has an esoteric or a cult aspect to it, would you? Yeah. You know what? I think I got you. I think I got just you. Just remember, the colony's lurking in this this whole mill years, too. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... By the middle of the decade, uh, the ACWF is leaving Wackle, and it's a big fat I told you so moment for the David Rouse and the Marvin Liebmans of the world and uh, all of the things. And then some other surprises that they predicted and not predicted had all come to pass by that point. So uh, in 72, they had that first Wackle conference outside of APACL territory is Mexico City. I'm just reviewing what we talked about last time in the Tecos episode. Tecos had formed FEMICO, the Mexican chapter of the World League, in time to uh, take their place at the Wackle Roundtable when they got going. And by 72, they're forming this regional affiliate called the CAL, the Congreso Anticomunista Latinoamericano. So it was kind of supposed to be the Latin American version of APACL. Uh, the East European European Freedom Council we got into in the last dedicated Wackle episode was kind of like the Eastern European thing, and the ABN was all up in that. So, um, and this is taking place 
the 72 conference uh, at, at a, at a bad time, right there. Bad time. Here's my phone ringing. Um, yeah, they just delisted Taiwan from the UN. Uh, y- you know, uh, the Cuba thing, like I said, we, we talked about all this. It's just kind of this brewing anti-American and anti-British sentiment. And uh, it's being bolstered by all this uh, dumb propaganda that we talked about in the Tecos episode. Um, so the continent's now awash in anti-American, anti-British, anti-democratic, anti-Semitic propaganda. Truman is referred to in the Tecos literature as Harry Solomon Truman. FDR was a Jew. Kissinger, of course, is a Jew. Gerald Ford's a Rockefeller agent. The Pope's a secret Jew, et cetera. And uh, in their propaganda, they were kind of like the Latin uh, American consult, version. Uh, did they consult the uh, Space Brothers at this point about the Jews yet? No, that's what they had Californians for. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> we, we got that part down over here in California. So, um, yeah, but but they had, like, the John Birch Society, you know, if they didn't like you, you're a communist. If the Tecos don't like you, you're a Jew. The John Birch Society's coming at it from a political, system-stabilizing, right-pulling org, and uh, the Tecos are doing the same kind of shtick but from a religious standpoint. So we don't like the reforms of Vatican II. The Pope's a Jew, right? You get the idea, right? Um, so the point is, uh, these Americans are walking into kind of an ambush in 72, uh, and the ACWF's kind of blindsided by all of it. And the Tecos, again, I talked about this, you know, if you host this year's conference, you're the president, you know, for the next year, and you help organize the next year's conference. And your chapter leader is the head of the whole world league for the next year. So while they're holding uh, the leadership role for the whole world league, they're kind of gaming it against the British because, you know, they invented Freemasonry and the Freemasons started the French revolution and something, something Jew, something, something. So, you know, they're, they're not big fans of the British. So, but, but nevertheless, the next year's conference is supposed to take place in London. And so there's like a train wreck of three different kind of things going on that wind up making that conference get canceled. And the first one is the Tecos themselves. They're saying, uh, instead of sending the money to Britain to help pay for some of this stuff in advance, all of the Latin American chapters under the CAL banner send us your money and we'll give it to them cash on delivery when we get there. So it's kind of like starving them a little bit for the funds that they need to get going. So there's that. Plus they're just being jerks anyway, you know, cause they're the British. Um, the second thing is Kuching Chang can't really keep his mouth shut about how angry he is about uh, the Republic of China no longer, you know, being formerly part of the UN and he's running his mouth all over the place. And this causes the British to give him a warning saying you can come here as long as you don't do anything to embarrass her majesty's government, which they took literally to mean like while I'm there, but really they, they later complained that, well, he didn't do anything to embarrass her government while he was there, but he kind of did while he's not in Britain and it kind of got back to them 
And he winds up getting denied a visa. And he's the chairman or the honorary president for life of the whole thing. And now he can't get into London. And I got to give some props to our fellow Wackle panel guy, Moss, who went to the National Captive Nations collection of Lev Dobriansky's papers in Syracuse and sent me a whole bunch of stuff about a year, year and a half ago, which I've been looking at this week. Um, and you can see the letters where Lee Edwards and Lev Dobriansky are writing to the British saying, what's the meaning of this? You know, you can't deny this guy a visa. And, and then the third thing is um, there's this arch conservative uh, group in Britain. That's the World Anti-Communist League chapter there called the Foreign Affairs Circle. And it's headed up by a guy named Joffrey Stewart Smith. And he's going to be the guy putting this together. And he's having a hard time because of the aforementioned thing about the money not coming in. But also, there's all these like flat out Nazi groups that are saying, yeah, we're, we're going to be coming. And he's like, I don't want you coming. Who, who the hell are you? You know, so in, inside the league, it talks about one group of like not just fascists, fascists, but like, you know, brown shirt, black tie, full on Nazi youth group in Spain that he's like, I don't want these people coming here. This is crazy. You're going to make me look bad. I don't know if you remember, but we fought against you guys in World War II. You bombed us, you know, et cetera. And so he's calling up and writing the the Spanish Wacko League chief saying, hey, man, we don't want this guy. You know, who are these Nazi guys? We don't want them here. And and so the Spanish Wacko guys are like, hey, if you have any questions about so-and-so's credentials, you can always write to Mr. Kuching Kang, the chief of the whole shebang, and he'll vouch for these guys. And so Stuart Smith starts realizing all I'm doing is talking to Nazis about how I don't want these other Nazis coming to Britain because they're Nazis, and all I'm doing is pissing off these Nazis. And uh, <laughs> so that's happening, and the funding problem is happening. And when they tell Kuching Kang he can't actually come to London, uh, they pull the plug on the conference at the last minute. And the Techos stick the British chapter with the bill which is like $84,000. And uh, so that sucked. Um, and yeah, yeah. So in the meantime, the American Council for World Freedom had prepared this, you know, thing that we talked about at length in the last episode, this whole write-up about the Techos and where they're from and what they want and why they're bad and why they can't be in the same group with us. And they had struggled with what to do about it. And so they have this, uh, you know, executive board meeting. And they're, 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 they're looking at the results of, of the investigation of the Techos. And like, what do we do about this? We need to make some kind of statement, you know, and go on the record that we're not cool with anti-Semitism and anti-Americanism and racism. And, et cetera, et cetera, right? So they have this this meeting and uh, the Andersons called it a study in cowardice, right? So somebody, it doesn't say who in the book, but somebody 
on the ACWF board brings this kind of motion at their meeting that they want to go on the record saying, uh, I have it written down somewhere here. It was going to be, uh, oh, that anti-Semitism is incompatible with anti-communism, which, you know, is not true. <laughs> it's not true. It's very compatible. Um, hey, Keith, so, would that have been yeah, Pasoni? It doesn't say in the book, and I don't have any of the actual, you know, letters or uh, minutes of the meeting or whatever. Okay. Yeah, but so it gets shot down because another member says this is basically going to be us admitting guilt and looking like we have a guilty conscience. And so if you remember, I talked about Reed Irvine, the uh, fake news pioneer. Um, he says, I have an idea. How about instead we release a statement instead of saying anti-Semitism is incompatible with anti-communism. He says, what if instead we say anti-Semitism is incompatible with enlightened civilized conduct and we condemn the communist states for the practice of it. <laughs> you see what I did there? Do you love it? I mean, come on, uh, man. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. That wasn't lost on me. It, yeah. It's always the projection, right? Like they literally have these fascists who can't shut up about Jews so let's re release a statement saying, yes, communist anti-Semitism is the problem. No, man. But that's Reed Irvine. So um, and you can guess which one did the ACWF go with? Right. <laughs> I'll give you one guess. So Stuart yeah. Smith sees this. And uh, he's putting the conference together and he gets he gets the he gets Pasoni's report because Pasoni makes the mistake in hindsight of sending it to him. So while he's trying to put together this conference and freaking out about Nazis trying to come over from Spain and other places, he gets Pasoni's report and he's like waiting for the ACWF to make some kind of statement about it. And then they say communist anti-Semitism is bad. And he's like, what? He's like, you, you exactly went right past the actual point of your own thing. So he starts writing to them saying, hey, are you guys going to say something about this? You know, you put some money out and you had this investigation you clearly spent a lot of time on it and did your homework. So what's going to be the end result of this guys. Um, and, uh, so you can see the scandal brewing here, right? Um, so by the time, uh, the conference gets canceled, you know, he, Stuart Smith is writing up the beginnings of his, uh, giant manifesto which is over 100 pages by the end of the decade but it's it starts out as a little chapter called wacko and anti-semitism and part of it's from his own investigations and part of it's from Pasoni's Teco's investigation and he threatens to go to the media with it and ACWF is silent the wacko chiefs are silent about the whole thing and so what he does is he sends Pasoni's Tecos report and his own little investigation to every Wackle member chapter around the world, including a copy to every member of the ACWF. And that winds up hurting the ACWF a lot more than it hurts Wackle because the Wackle guys are like, oh, yeah, there's me. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> we're good with this. But the Tecos are like, you know, what? They've been they've been doing a whole investigation on us this whole time without even telling us? I knew it. They're a bunch of Jews, right? <laughs> so it creates this big scandal, 
and all of the Latin Americans rally around the Tecos, um, you know, saying, uh, I knew it. It's a Yankee trick. They were investigating us while shaking hands and high-fiving us in Mexico City, but then they they went and did this whole thing about us, and they don't like us. And So then the ACWF guys throw Pasoni under the bus, and they write back to Stuart Smith saying, hey, that was just one guy, his opinion and his investigation. He doesn't speak for the ACWF, which is crazy because they are the ones that commissioned the study in the first place. And then, anyway, the, the punchline of the whole thing is um, the ACWF, in the meantime, had rescheduled this conference that was supposed to take place in London to happen about six months later in Washington, D.C. And they just still go ahead with the conference in spite of in spite of all that, just in case there was any doubt about what side they were on when it came to all this. There you go. Right. So. I want to talk about the, eight, the the 74 conference a little bit because this is this is where I'll let's maybe hopefully get a little more interesting here. It's, just, it's like a little tabloid scandal, but let's move on. Um, so the, at the beginning of these conferences, they have an executive board, right? The executive board will vote on these motions and these resolutions, but they also vote on bringing in new members. And then after the executive board meets, they have the bigger meeting with everybody that's invited, but doesn't have any voting power, right? So this time, they finally get up the, the nerve to go on the record, and they pass this resolution that I'll, I'll quote from it, but not before saying that you'll notice when I read this that Tecos and anything Latin America does not appear anywhere in it, but after saying that you know, while Wackel recognizes world communism as the biggest threat to freedom around the world, and but that being said, there's still some anti-communist forces out there whose beliefs are also inimical, inimical to uh, freedom and democracy. And then it and then it says, and whereas among these movements there is a variety of Nazi and neo-Nazi organizations and grouplets with the World Union of National Socialists as the principal coordinating center. And there are, in addition, other organizations which speak in the name of anti-communism, but which affront the principles of freedom and human equality and play into the hands of the communists by engaging in propaganda and activities that are directed against the Jews, Protestants, or Catholics, as the case may be, instead of against a common enemy, da 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 And you can see David Rao has crossed off the Protestants and Catholics and just leaves the Jews part in there because, like, come on, this is what we're talking about. Let's not confuse the issue. Nobody's out there complaining about Catholics in the anti-communist world, right? Um, and so when they get to the part that, you know, whereas, 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 therefore, you know, they they say they're condemning racism and anti-communism and anti-Semitism and anti-communism. And then they say that Wackel henceforth is going to do like a thorough scrubbing of its ranks uh every two years for each chapter that's in it they're gonna they're gonna look into it and make sure that there isn't a bunch of nazis in there which is interesting um they never did that uh until the 80s when singlob kind of pretended to but uh yeah, anyway so they after, really scrub very hard. what's that so they never really scrubbed very hard did they 
No, they didn't. So anyway, after passing that resolution, they let some new members in. Uh, namely, let's uh, here's a few of them. Alpha 66, the Cuban terrorist outfit, gets admitted in 74. Um, Mario rubbing there, man. Right, Mario Sandoval Alacron's uh, MLN movement, the, the movement for national liberation, uh, the Death Squad Party, Guatemala, the guy that was like kind of the Godfather. He called himself the Godfather. You know, he was he was there at the Arbenz coup. Big white hand guy. So they let him in. And then they're also admitting what they called the organization from Belgium. And let me quote what it says. The organization from Belgium represented by Mr. Paul Vanker Coven from Belgium. That's V-A-N-K-E-R-K-H-O-V-E-N from Belgium as an associate member. So I go and I take that name, Vanker Coven, plug it into David Teacher's book on Le Cercle, plug it in, do a Google search with the ISGP, and there's that name coming up a bunch in context of Le Cercle. And in the case of ISGP, that name appears like five times in his page about the Dutro affair. So that's gross. Uh, so, but anyway, this is the Belgian section of Le Cercle getting admitted into uh, Wackel in 74. And if you read David Teacher's book and other sources, they say that that happened in like 70 or 71. But this is a this is a Wackel document saying 74 is when he got formally admitted. So I don't know. It's just a little factoid. But then after that, uh, the conference begins. Highlights include a keynote by William Buckley. Uh, Freedom Fighter Awards for Solzhenitsyn, Cardinal Mazenzi, and the Dalai Lama. Uh, there's a lunch address from uh, Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza. Yeah, Marvin Liebman bragged about helping get the Dalai Lama out of Tibet. So that's I mean, in his the, book. You know, the Dalai Lama, everything from um, Nazism to Nexium, man. I mean, it's amazing. Right? And Om Shinrikyo, don't forget. No, no, nobody likes me because I bring shit like that up to people and they're like, come on, man, it's the Dalai Lama. Can I have something? No, no heroes, no idols. <laughs> Everybody's dirty. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so um, and then so after Somoza gives his lunchtime breaks, you know, they have uh, musical breaks by none other than the Freedom Leadership Foundation Choir which had to be like some cheap knockoff of like the moral rearmament sing out group. And it just sounds cringy. <laughs> it just, it just sounds cringy. They're, apparently there's like a wackle theme song, which I would love to hear. And they're up there singing it in like 12 part harmony or something. I don't know. I don't want to know, but, uh, you don't, you don't want me to sing any of the old songs for you, Keith. Uh, I'd like to do that after class. <laughs> Uh, okay, we'll t we'll take a rain check on that because I <laughs> I earned my stripes in Mooney singing. Let me tell you. Oh my, oh my God. Okay, go ahead. Hum a few bars. No, we can't. We can't. We can't put the listener through that type of suffrage. Okay. No, yeah. That's not going to happen. No. No. <laughs> so, anyway, seventy four was. You know, the whole period from 72 to like 75 is is, is a disaster. And uh, it takes a whole other year. And ACWF finally uh, leaves Wackle over the whole thing. And Stuart Smith, 
keeps compiling his wackle investigation. By the end of the decade, it's called something either the hidden face of wackle or what is the world anti-communist league. And I'm trying to get my hands on that right now. But uh, creates a big PR problem for the Americans, as you might imagine. And uh, it's the 1958 conundrum all over again. These guys are really good anti-communist allies, but they also have like Nazi memorabilia above their fireplaces. So doesn't really play well in Peoria. And so then they quit in 75, but it didn't matter. uh, Because like the actual new right leaders in America, they didn't care about any of that stuff. And I, to give you an example, uh, Lee Edwards and Richard Vigory, they team up with Howard Phillips and Paul Weyrich the next year for trying to, for a hostile takeover of like the super far right American independence party with they're trying for a Robert Morris, Richard Vigory ticket. And it didn't work, but you get the idea. I mean, this is the party that ran George Wallace, Curtis LeMay as their ticket, like the decade before. And I looked it up, the American independence party, you know who their nominee for vice president was this year? Kanye West. No kidding. They nominated Kanye West (laughs) VP this year. Um, But it also didn't matter that they left because the ACWF and and the main wackle chiefs, they just kept right on chugging like nothing had happened. So like in in Liebman's papers at Hoover, there's this folder where you can find this next generation. And I guess we should call it a neoconservative conference pushing what we should just call neoliberal policies. And it's this new group called the Inter-American Conference on Freedom and Security, which becomes like the the seed for what would later become the Committee for Inter-American Security, or CIS. And they're gathering at a nice hotel in D.C. for the event. A bunch of people who would later later turn out to be death squad leaders and Condor guys and CAL guys with the techo turned down just a little bit. They're all there. And Dobriansky and Pasoni are moderators for these discussions. And also Stetsko and Kuching Kang are there. Right. So what is this? It's a wackle conference without the wackle label. You know, and I mean, it's like nothing happened. Um, it's the same with with Rao. He made it good on his promise to quit the ACF, but he's he's still in the mix. And Liebman, who's been bragging to people about how he was too cool for all this all the way since 58. Here he is in the mix, too. And you know why? Because he's running this brand new lobby that he's created with Rao and Pasoni and Anthony Kubek of Western Goals fame and Walter Judd and Lynn Francis Bucci and Ronald Doxai. And it's called the American Chilean Council. And it's to boost Pinochet's image in the U.S. And so this stuff is in his folder at Hoover, in his papers at Hoover, because he's writing to these Chilean guys saying, hey, I know you got an invite to this this conference and I hope you'll come because, you know, you're going to meet some good people and do some good networking. So it's wackle without the wackle label. And uh, so the DOJ, he got in trouble with the DOJ over the American Chilean Council. And I'll quote from the Washington Post on this. They, the DOJ said that uh, the sole purpose of the American Chilean Council is to disguise the business relationship that exists between the Chilean government of General Augusto Pinochet and its American public relations representatives. The suit alleged that Liebman sent a confidential memorandum 
on December 9th, 74, outlining the PR campaign to the Chilean ambassador in Washington. Uh, the Justice Department also said that Lehman letters and other documents um, refer to the council as a front group and says that its members are, in effect, lettered head names. And uh, Liebman said in one memo that the PR effort on behalf of Pinochet was necessary to, quote, counteract feelings in the United States that Salvador Allende, the Marxist Chilean leader overthrown in 1973 by Pinochet, is a martyr and a victim of fascist tyranny. And it's important here because if you look up the words neoliberal and Chile together, you find out that all of that um, Austrian school, Chicago Chicago school, neoliberal type economics, you know, just loot the any kind of social programs, social security and pensions and just, you know, the the neoliberal thing, you know. Yeah, that was Milton Uh, Friedman. Milton Friedman. There you go. Um, those guys were like, here, this Pinochet's uh, Chile can be our little laboratory for for testing out these kind of policies. And then so, you know, but what are they using? They're using a fascist kind of uh, movements and death squads and stuff, not to bring about of, actual yeah. fascism, but neoliberalism. Right. In the case of Colonia Dignidad, like it was uh, this was essentially a kind of cult uh, operating in Chile where uh, torture facilities were set up. And I mean, it was a key node in the Condor network. But um, in this case, it was being run by literal former Nazis, like really right. literal <laughs> former Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to mention something else about this Liebman American Chilean Council file, because He's a, uh, you know, his his American Chilean Council is 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 using its existence, I guess, to uh, run these cover operations and spread disinfo around the assassination of Orlando Letelier, which happened in broad daylight in Washington D.C. Um, and I think it was '76, right? And he hires yeah, this security. Yeah, I'll be getting into that short shortly. All yeah, right, well, we'll ahead. check this out. He's don't let me steal your thunder. Stop me if you've heard this one. Um, he, he, he hires this security consultant firm called Interspec at 1120 Connecticut Avenue, which would have made it neighbors with the other Connecticut Avenue guys that, Don, you referred to earlier. And his guy from Interspec is reporting back how Larry McDonald was reading right-wing stuff about Letelier into the congressional record, which is something that Larry McDonald, who would become the head of the Robert... Uh, the Robert Welch's John Birch Secret Society after Robert Welch died. He was fond of reading stuff from right-wing rags into the congressional record. Um, But yeah, there, and speaking of Knights of Malta, the guy from Interspec, Robert L. Shortley, uh, this was his company. And he'd been hired to, uh, not to investigate the murder of Letelier, but to dig up dirt on the guy and help shape perceptions around the hit, which again, took place on American soil. And nobody has any doubt anymore that it was Pinochet pretty much right directly behind that hit. Um, That's what the NSA documents show. Yeah. But Shortley's obituary says he was a Knight of Malta himself. And he served on the board of NICPAC, the National Conservative PAC, which would later have people like Roger Stone on the payroll, etc. Was he a a quote-unquote real Knight of Malta or was he a shikshinny one? It... I think he was just the the regular one. 
Okay, okay, that's good. Yeah, that's interesting too, especially since we know that uh, Larry McDonald was uh, he was involved in several of the sovereign orders of St. John. I think what right. like three of them or something like that. The successors to the Shikshini. and we're yes. going to talk about that guy who was on the the Wackle board in the '80s before he died. Um, we'll talk about that in our next episode. But I know I'm kind of going on here, but I got a little bit more. Right? Is it okay, guys? I'm going to be here all day. Um, oh, absolutely, sir. Go for this uh, CIS, CIAS thing that I just talked about, this inter-American security thing, was started a year after you know, they quit Wackle by Ronald Doxai of the Young Americans for Freedom and ACWF and Anthony Boriskin, who worked for the Pioneer Fund in the 60s. Uh, Lynn Bucci was a founder. I think that was the guy that would later... Oh, no, I'm thinking of Borchgrave. Never mind. Um, Patrick Buchanan was on it. Uh, Larry Pratt, the later Gun Owners of America guy. Um, he's on it. And John Singlaub's on this right after getting canned by Carter. So these guys are kind of making what would become Reagan's foreign policy. And Reagan tried to run for president in 76 and didn't work, but he got in in 80. And they're creating this uh this policy group that you know that we need to really get tough and, and do the rollback thing you know that you were talking about earlier um do it in latin america do it all over the world and they they'd come up with a document called, uh, from the, the committee of santa fe um we'll get into that more later but these are the wackle guys doing the wackle thing under a different label um yeah i think i can Oh, there's one other thing, though, I wanted to mention about this. During this period, okay, I want to add something that's kind of related to this, but I got to go through Barry Goldwater's papers in the Arizona archives a couple of years ago, and he was in the ASC. There's always an ASC folder with these guys, and then after about five times of going through and like, ooh, I want to see what his American Security Council stuff in, his, in that folder says, and it never says anything. It's always brochures and like fundraising letters, and you're like, why did I just pay for this? But in the case of Goldwater, there's actually some there there. And it's like letter after letter from his fan base saying, hey, man, I keep getting these letters from the American Security Council asking me for money. Are they legit? <laughs> I see your names on there. And it's just like a little snapshot of, of this this empire, this golden age of like direct mail fundraising that Liebman and Richard Vigory had like really pioneered you know, this technique of this fear-based propaganda to beg for money for all kinds of causes in that Turner's book, Power on the Right. And Alan Crawford wrote a book in 1980 called Thunder on the Right, talking about these dozens of groups of friends of the FBI, the friends of J. Edgar Hoover or the Underground Bible Fund. You know, they're going to take your dollars and use it to drop Bibles behind the Iron Curtain or whatever. And we need to support our police. And, and Edwards and Vigory and other guys like that are just take just massive haircuts off of this fund like you know 50 60 70 percent of the take they're just taking in maybe like buy five bibles and throw them over the berlin wall you know um and uh so vigory had gotten his start doing just that kind of work this direct mail fundraising for like billy james hargis you know in the 50s and by the 70s these guys are kingmakers. you can't do a political campaign if you're a conservative without Vigory or Edwards or other guys like him and his Ravco company. And uh, 
Yeah, and so during the 70s when the Moonies were really ramping up and getting kids like Mr. Diligent here to work themselves half to death selling flowers and candy, fundraising, fundraising, always fundraising on the streets, and then Viggory and others like him are just fleecing the hell out of old ladies, begging him for money the whole time. Um, and Liebman told Alan Crawford, he uh, was interviewed for that Thunder on the Right book, and he said that the whole business was hideous and it amounted to raping the public. And there's an article uh, by a Corey Panshin called New Rightists and Old Anti-Communists. If anybody wants to look it up, they can get more about it. Um, yeah, I think I'm good. I think I said what I had to say on that. Thank you for indulging me. Oh, no worries, man. No, that was great. All right, Don. Uh, just a little add-on. Uh, Gary Jarman, towards the, the end of his uh, fabulous career quote-unquote fabulous he also was doing his own fleecing you know uh right in right in line with what you're talking about there keith yeah i mean it's i mean it really is a racket i mean especially in the right when you look at a lot of these outfits um it's just fascinating i mean the overlap they really do have with organized crime and how it's run but um that's a topic unto itself all right, so, Don, by 1976, the Moon Movement was getting big headlines in the major newspapers, which led to Koreagate. The Fraser Committee, as it was coined, was tasked to investigate the inner workings of Moon's organization. What was the nature of the Moonies' relationship with Wackle during the mid to late 1970s? Wow, great question. Uh, where do I begin there? Well... You've heard me talk about IOWC during the Nixon and Ford years, which means now we're just talking the Carter years, in essence. So one thing that comes to mind immediately that I've uh, only thought about deeply just recently, as I was preparing for this podcast, actually, is the fact that uh, both the Moon organization and Wackel we're going through, shall we say, uh, a growing pains period, uh, which, of course, you know, Keith has already been uh, elucidating and articulating on to, to a great extent. So th this growing pains period I'm referring to, it, it definitely is continuing here in, into the 70s. Um, actually, maybe we should just call it a pain in the ass Nazis period, uh, pun intended. Sorry about that. Yeah. Emphasis uh, on just pain. Yeah, just painful. Yeah, yeah. R right, just, just, just painful, right. So anyway, looking at the woes of the Moon organization <clears throat> at that time, I mean, the, the long and the short of it was that uh, the Fraser Committee, as it was coined, which was the Congressional investi Investigation into Moon's organization, you know, headed by Donald Fraser. That investigation uh, basically put the kibosh on any type of major campaigning for Moon, uh, you know, all the rallies, public talks by Moon, grand events like the one moon held at Yankee Stadium and Washington Monument that would have been 1976 all that intensive campaigning basically came to a stop because of Fraser and uh, just to mention about that Mos uh, Washington Monument rally 
that was supported by Lev Dobriansky and his, you know, National Captive Nations Committee outfit. Uh, he ended up mobilizing, sending a, a an entire uh, group, a large group of of those folk uh, to Moon's event to uh, to fill out the audience. Uh, so that's kind of a little known uh, trivia. Um, now, as an, another little digression, I, I think it's important to point out here that even though the Fraser Committee was hindering and, and many would say suffocating, uh, you know, the momentum that had been built up in the U.S. by Moon's operation there, it doesn't seem like the Japanese anti-communist work, uh, which was clearly bigger and better organized uh, that it's, uh, than its counter counterpart in the West, in other words, that they over in Japan, they didn't seem like they were losing a beat uh, at this time. Kaboki and his colleagues were still showing up at WACL conferences. Uh, furthermore, the IOWC jumped over to Japan in 1975 which was right before the Fraser Committee was getting itself oriented, so to speak. I mean, it's so interesting to me that even though Wackel uh, was was getting uh, more Nazi fascist by the minute, that the Japanese Mooney operation was moving full steam ahead uh, right along. Uh, Go Tony, ahead. That's here for a second. Wasn't this around the same time frame that the... Um the Lockheed scandal broke out that Kadama was implicated in as well? Uh, yes, that would be the same time frame. Correct. So, but the Correct. Lockheed scandal, I guess, didn't really cramp their style as much as it did for the uh, the Moonies then, huh? Uh, it, it, it was not stopping Kaboki. Uh, that, that guy was a man on a mission. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended there either. Okay. So, um... And then if you add on the fact that the scope of Fraser's investigation was being almost completely limited to the Korean-American relationship or dynamic, quote-unquote, shall we say. Uh, so I guess what I'm getting at here is uh, one has to wonder what intelligence was working behind the scenes so that the Japanese operation, you know, Kaboki's mm -hmm. troops, uh, anti-communist work, etc., um, what intelligence was working behind the scenes so that wouldn't be compromised in any way? My, my thought as I talk about this is, you know, if I was to talk to J Daniel Junis about this, he might have some interesting insights. And for those listeners that don't know Junis, he was the most important person interviewed in the PBS Frontline documentary back in the early 90s, which exposed, among other things, the fascist Japanese ties to the Moonies. He also wrote a thesis about the Moon Organization, an article in Corporate Action Information Bulletin, and he even has a book manuscript about the Moonies that he never published, actually. So anyway, but but so the Fraser Committee is leaving out. They're they're protecting the Japanese side of it while going after the Koreans. Correct. 
Correct. This, this, this reminds me of something very important, which is that <clears throat> a Limited Hangout and Lee Harvey Oswald have the same initials. So, anyway. Uh, oh, that's oh, that's interesting. Oh yeah, I like that. Uh, perfect. Yeah, Limited Hangout, Lee Harvey Oswald. Perfect. Yeah, you could you can have that. Yeah, yeah, I'll put that. I'll put that in my pipe. Use that bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wish I would have thought more about the Lockheed thing because that's kind of it's also interesting in that era too because Lockheed I think was one of the big was one of the principal funding conduits for um, the ASC too. But um, if I'm not mistaken though, not much came out of the Lockheed thing either. Whereas like Moon had you know visibly gone, uh, it had a major uh, you know knockdown in prestige over all of this as well as the South Korean government if I'm not mistaken, right? Right, right. No, it's true. So I mean. From what you're saying, and it almost sounds like whatever intelligence things were going on behind the scenes that was protecting Kaboki and allowing him to go full steam ahead, it would have been that same influence that somehow was able to, you know, keep Kodama, you know, from, you know, just completely being like totally stopped in all the things that he was behind you know, from that, from that time on, is that kind of how you uh, are, are thinking there recluse? Is yeah. There Cause I, of- if I'm not mistaken, it was Kadama was kind of in a similar situation as the Moonies where he was what implicated in passing money on to us officials or something like that. Um, yeah. I haven't been able to find any, you know, hard documentation as far, as far as that goes, you know, Peter Dale Scott type material, quote unquote, uh, I, I, think I just Jim have Hogan gets into it in that spooks book. He talks about this. Ah, uh, that's true. That's true. Hogan does get into this. And I, I actually have only read bits and pieces of Hogan's book, uh, unfortunately. So, uh, so anyway, getting back to the Fraser committee here. So Fraser was clearly putting the screws to the moon organization. Uh, Neil Salonen was subpoenaed to testify albeit in private session, unfortunately. We don't have an official record of what Salonen said. Uh, Dan Pfefferman, though, uh, Salonen's number two guy, and the guy who wrote the public statement for FLF stating how they felt about all the Nazi influence that had perpetrated or penetrated Wackle, that public statement coming out during the course of the 1974 Wackle Conference. So anyway, Pfefferman, uh, he actually appeared in open session, uh, and that would have been in 77. And then in 78, Korea Gate really came to a head. Bohe Pak had to testify four times, no less. And as just a little uh, moony side note, our former Mooney side note, it was only days before Bohe Pak's first testimony in front of Fraser that I had met my recruiter and joined the Moonies. I had no knowledge of Koreagate, none whatsoever. Say la vie. Don't shed a tear for me because I'm here today. Right, guys? So anyway, survived, man. That's, yeah, that's survived. The, 
Yeah. That's so anyway, yeah. c- continuing on. So if Moon and his cohorts had to lay low to a great extent during this time, you know, uh, particularly in the States is what I'm saying here. And if Wackle itself was going through all its junk, controversy, whatever, where do Wackle and the Moonies overlap during these Carter years? That's the question, right? Well, let me make it clear that Salonen and FLF were still very much in the game. Uh, FLF still had all their connections. Salonen was still on the board of the American Council for World Freedom. And get this, immediately after that closed-door session that Fraser had with Salonen that I just just touched on, Salonen must have had permission from Moon and or Bohee Pak to appear on William F. Buckley's TV show Firing Line, where Salonen is defending the Mooney's religious doctrine, talking with Buckley as the host, of course, and this other Jewish guy who didn't appreciate the anti-Semitic verbiage in Moon's religious doctrine. And and you know what? Buckley didn't ask Salonen one question about the ongoing Fraser Committee investigation. Talk about frickin' wow. softball. Just gets over just gets under my skin. Okay? Yeah, man. Well, Wasn't this at the time, too, that Buckley was getting ready to run for office? No, he ran for mayor. Uh, that was back in the um, that was back in the late 60s, I think, going oh, into 70. OK, okay, that, okay. That, that's when Roger Stone, as a as a teenager, got uh, got got hooked up into the into the system, you know, with Nixon <laughs> and and uh, also with uh, with Buckley at that time, uh-huh. if, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, it really shouldn't surprise us too much about Buckley, you know, not asking Salonen one single hardball question since, you know, as you and and our listeners who listen to the Mooney podcast know, you know, what type of connections between Buckley's network and the Moon organization had, you know, going, you know, going back to the beginning, you know, and so forth and so on. So, okay. Oh, one more thing about FLF that I just found out recently. As best as I can tell, Salonen and crew created a FLF subgroup, we'll call it, in the late 70s. And it was called the American Council of Captive Nations. I found out about that group in in the Ukrainian Weekly. Moss Robeson would be proud of me. And the reason I think the term subgroup applies here is because it was run by Joseph Sheftik, who was who was a top lieutenant under Salonen at FLF. And I mean, even the name speaks volumes. It's a combination of the American Council for World Freedom, where we have the words American Council. Right. And Dobriansky's National Captive Nations Committee where we have the words captive nations. I mean, how much more obvious can this be? <clears throat> I mean, it's obvious, really. but it's also like confusing. It's like the American friends of the American council of the conference of captive free <laughs> nations of anti-communism freedom, something, something. 
Well, it's all it's all word up with all of it. Yeah, it's all wordplay, right? But 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 like I said about my theory concerning the friends of, where I said that those groups that have friends in the in the name, where where you could very well be an informal network where these guys are sharing certain information, certain things are passing, you know, back and forth or whatever. Then when we have this wordplay, as I'm coining it here then I think it's also indicative. It, it sends a message out. Like if you're an anti-communist guy out there in one of these groups and you see the name, oh, okay, so this Mooney guy created an American Council for, uh, I'm sorry, American Council uh, of Captive Nations. Okay, we know exactly what that means. Okay, so we know exactly where they stand. It's kind of like an open secret in okay. essence. Code language. Yeah, code language, whatever. Anyway, you you guys are getting my my point here. Yeah. But by, by, uh, by the way, I I got to share a little antidote here, since you know it's another one of these former Mooney things that I can throw in. So the head of this group, Joseph Sheftik, he would become a chiropractor who lived and practiced near Moon's mansion in Westchester County, New York. And yours truly. Yes, Don Diligent was one of Joseph Chef's Joseph Sheftick's chiropractic Mooney patients. You just can't make this stuff up, can you guys? Did you sell sell him some peanut brittle? <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Okay, moving ahead here. Now, another Mooney wackle tie during the late seventies, and this is the crucial connection that I've really been leading up to. Now we're talking Operation Condor here. Now, I know, and I just alluded to, Dan Pfefferman, on behalf of Salonen and FLF, you know, made that public statement about FLF's displeasure with all these Nazi fascists within WACL, you know, going back to Tecos, etc. And Henrik Kruger, who you haven't brought up yet, uh, uh, Keith, I guess you're probably going to. I don't know. He came out with his groundbreaking book, The Great Heroin Coup, where he talks about all this and more. So, you know, having said all that, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me. Even though Salonen, Pfefferman, and certain ACWF luminaries, you know, and whatnot, were officially denouncing this neo-Nazi infiltration of Wackel. We can still find source document evidence uh, by 1979 when neo-Nazi general Alfredo Strostner from Paraguay, who was heading up the Wackel conference that year, we find evidence that the Moonies are tied to Operation Condor, which Wackel was involved in as well. And uh, brother, I mean, if I... I'm about to swear as a sailor here as I talk about this, but, you know, I mean, think of it, a, a Mooney that's 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 discovering the fact that that your organization that you thought was a Messiah organization, that you thought you were following the second coming of Jesus, and you're involved in Operation Condor. I mean, the day I found that out, man, I just like, I said, are you kidding me? I mean, I like fell out of my chair. I mean, how, 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 how much worse can this get? All right. All right. Butcher no, some nuns for Jesus. I mean, geez. 
okay. So then, what did I find? Okay, uh, uh, what source of what source documents did I find? Well, back in 2016, in the FBI files I perused, that I found on a Mooney website, no less. I know some listeners are not gonna believe that a Mooney website is going to have the FBI files on Moon, but it's the honest to God truth, and I know Keith will back me up on this, right, Keith? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just crazy. All right. So one thing led to another. I found a National Archive document here, a Jeffrey Stein Village Voice article there. The Stein article, by the way, is cited in Kruger's book. So between the FBI files, the National Archive, and Stein's article, I was able to establish a hard connection between the Moonies and Operation Condor. And specifically, the anti-Castro organization CARU, which stands for Coordination of United Revolutionary Organizations which was formed in 1976, and it was alleged, and still is, that George H.W. Bush, who was the CIA director in 76, was involved in the creation of this terrorist outfit. So what I'm going to do now, because if I don't do it now, it may never happen. It may never happen on the Internet. I'm going to play the game. We've read the documents in honor of our wackle colleague, John Brisson, because these three documents, the key excerpts that I want to read, they need to be heard. So first, I want to read from this National Archives document. The National Archives are in D.C., uh, by the way, for those who don't know. So it says here, quote, On Monday, April 17, 1978, Dr. Carlos F. Dominicis, Carew leader in the New York area, had arrived in Miami, Florida at approximately 3 a.m. and had furnished $1,100 in cash to Orlando Bebo Acosta to finance military action. Dominicis had previously mailed Acosta $1,000 in cash which Acosta received on April 13, 1978. Source advised that Dominicis advised that he had attended a conference in Chicago sponsored by the Federación de Organizaciones Cubanas de Illinois. In other words, the Federal Organizations of, of Cubans in Illinois. Uh, acronym o, uh, FOCI, excuse me. Dominicis advised that approximately 12 days prior, Dominicis had been approached by one Korean and one Spanish individual claiming to be delegates of Reverend Moon mm. and had offered financial aid to FOCI and its anti-Castro activity. Dominicis advised that he had discussed the financial aid being offered by Reverend Moon with Frank Castro and Orlando Acosta, 
And Dominicus was told by Castro and Acosta to go ahead and receive financial aid offered by the delegates of Reverend Moon. Dominicus advised that Carew is being proposed as the possible military arm of FOCI, end quote. <clears throat> so that's number one. Okay. Now, Jeffrey Stein's article, we find out that the Moon Organization is going to contribute to the defense fund of the three anti-Castro Carew members that were tried and found guilty for the murder of Orlando Letelier, the man that Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet wanted dead as a doornail. I'm sorry, guys. I remember right. I'm an ex I'm an ex Mooney here, and this this is sensitive for me. Letelier's car was blown up with him and two others inside in broad daylight, as Keith already touched on, in downtown D.C., September 76, which was right around the time, same month, that Moon and Dobriansky's group are at Washington Monument. Anyway, I'm not going to say anything on that. Here's the excerpt from Stein's article. Quote, In 1977, a representative from yet another heavily financed international organization dedicated to fighting world communism appeared on the scene. A Reverend Jose Casado of Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church. Over the past two years, it was learned Casado arranged and paid for buses to transport exiles to the World Anti-Communist League conferences in Washington. I'm going to interject here. That's Alpha 66, and Henrik Kruger cited that. Back to the quote. Ormando Santana also said Casado supplied $2,000 to the Cuban National Movement to help pay legal fees for the three members convicted for their parts in the Letelier murder. I'm going to take a breath. That ends excerpt two. Now for the finale, or shall I say third time is the charm. This time we're going to go to the moon FBI files. I should mention here, though, that since there are some words that are blotted out or didacted, I'm just going to say the word so-and-so in those spots so everyone can follow along more easily. So here's what it says, quote, subject, coordination of United Revolutionary Organizations, Carew, purpose, to furnish information received that Reverend Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church has agreed to furnish monetary support to the Cuban exile terrorist organization, Carew, in the United States. Details. On the instructions of so-and-so, Carew leader, and with FBI con concurrence, so-and-so recently traveled from 
so-and-so metropolitan area to meet with leaders of the Cuban exile terrorist movement there. Source obtained valuable information concerning bass, uh, excuse me, concerning past bombing activity by Cuban exiles, as well as structure of present terrorist organizations. In addition, source learned that Reverend Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church was prepared to financially back the Cuban exile terrorist element. Source met with so-and-so, a member of the Unification Church, on December 12, 78. So-and-so told the source that he is in charge of so-and-so affairs for Reverend Moon and his organization. On December 2nd, that's the next day, so-and-so introduced source to to one so-and-so at the New Yorker Hotel. That's the place where Moon chose my future wife for me. Sorry for the digression. So-and-so told Source that he had testified in the so-and-so case in Washington. So that just told us that that's Bohe Pak, okay? Let me repeat. So-and-so told Source that he testified in the so-and-so case in Washington, and so-and-so expressed keen interest in Karu and stated that Reverend Moon desires to discreetly establish a finance network of radical anti-communist groups around the world to fight the communists in as much as Moon fears the United States will withdraw from Korea and expose Korea to the North Korean communists. Now, here's an excerpt from another FBI document, okay, which has a doozy of a line about Wackle. It reads, quote, So-and-so advised that the Reverend Moon organization wishes to provide financial aid to anti-communist terrorists and is willing to utilize the church as a cover for its activities. I was just thinking about what you said about me fundraising with peanut brittle, Keith, when I said that. Shit. All right, back to the quote. Damn this. So-and-so suggested that so-and-so advised that the Reverend Moon organization is willing to finance so-and-so a small amount of money, and a small amount of money has been furnished in the recent past to so-and-so, and that could be a reference to that money that's supposed to support the trial of those <clears throat> frickin' murderers of Latano Leterrier. Okay, let me, let me start here again. So-and-so suggested that so-and-so advised that the Reverend Moon organization is willing to finance so-and-so, and a small amount of money has already been furnished in, in the recent past to so-and-so, and so-and-so said that approximately 85% of the financing behind the World Anti-Communist League is performed with the Reverend Moon's money. End of quote. End of three quotes. 
There you have it. So you can't talk about the World Anti-Communist League without talking about the Moonies. Gee, you think? Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm surprised I didn't get that. I'm surprised I didn't get I didn't get to the swear words that I thought I was going to. I'm trying to behave myself here. Okay. Yeah, man. Hey, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So but anyway, I want to talk about the last sentence. Eighty five percent of Wackle funding coming from Moon. Look it. I think you guys are both going to agree with me. We know that's not true, technically speaking. But what it could mean and probably means is Golden Lily, Black Eagle Trust, the book Gold Warriors. You hear what I'm saying here? Yes, yes. And I mean, quite possibly drug proceeds as well. Um, It's another, I mean, obviously, long kind of standing underlining tie the Wackle has had with various drug cartels, too. I mean, it's rather staggering, honestly. And I mean, um, you know, you see some individuals like uh, the Cuban um, who was really big in Mexico in the 70s, Falcon, I think, Alberto Falcon or something to that extent. Um, You know, you have all these like just strange ties like that. but yeah, I mean, you also have the Golden Lily funds. Um, but I think really it's the Japanese connection that's crucial to all of this ultimately because they did have right. so much access to this black market funding, be it gold or drugs or whatever. Right. I mean, when you ask people like Robert Perry or or Junus or if you were to ask Jeffrey Bale, I don't think he's ever been interviewed or whatever. But I mean, if you were to talk to any of these guys you know they 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 basically have to just come to the conclusion that the moon organization is basically a conduit for these funds kodama sasakawa kishi i mean i talked about the m fund in in a previous show you know which spells golden lily i mean that was in the hands of kishi by 1960 that was given to him literally by by nixon and, you know, we don't know exactly where Kodama and Soka- Sasakawa fit in exactly. We just know that it's there. OK, um, so I think um, what I just uh, read there was what we'll call FBI document gold. And that's pun intended. OK. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so. All right. So to finally conclude my answer here. Which basically Keith said in a different way. It, it doesn't take much of an imagination to see that Wackle and the Moonies in the late 70s, you know, had the footprint of Operation Condor just screaming at us. And uh, with that, uh, I guess I'm done with, with that uh, little rant, etc. Unless you guys got a question or comment. Right. Just to say Thanks. well done, sir. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well done. Jeez. You know, and I mean, again, this is always very crucial. I mean, Condor would really kind of become one of the, you know, chief models for, you know, the sort of ongoing uh, anti-communist assault that uh, really broke out throughout the 1980s um, that we'll get into in the next episode. Um, And also known today, uh, today they call it extraordinary rendition. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, effectively, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, along with some of the other model programs like Phoenix and, uh, you know, what's often referred to as Gladio, I mean, it was basically institutionalized on a global scale with JSOC after the um, the global war on terror began. But, uh, 
that's another topic. Um, but one thing also I wanted to add to clarify on the whole thing with Lockheed and Kadama. Kadama was actually a registered agent of Lockheed bribing Japanese politicians, not American ones, uh, so as to buy Lockheed's products. So that is also another uh, possible funding source, uh, Lockheed, which was also, again, one of the major funders of the American Security Council and, in general, the defense industry. Um, you know, you really don't hear about that a lot. Um, of course, the, uh, the quote-unquote international bankers are endlessly uh, rallied against by various uh, conspiracy theorists to some extent. Uh, the oil industry is going to run through in the legacy media. And Big Pharma is also a popular target. But you rarely hear about the defense industries and monstrous outfits like Lockheed Martin, um, even though they are really the institutions principally responsible for creating these bodies in the United States. But anyway, getting up here to our last two questions. Keith, while all this was going on, the supposed retreat of the ACWF from Michael created the conditions for the Americans to get into bed with even more radical elements from around the world. And there were a few more radical than the man in the myth known as Roger Pearson, who sadly is still alive. I was um, upset to learn that uh, when I asked you about that yesterday. Um, it seems like he and good old John Sinklob, another uh, future... Uh, Wackle chairman um, will just simply not go away in bodily form anytime Billy soon. Joel, Billy Joel said it best, only the good die young. So true, so true. Um, <clears throat> certainly, Sink Love, as he approaches 100, and Pearson at the uh, somewhat spryer age of 93 uh, seem to be a testament to that. So, Keith, tell us about Mr. Pearson and the dark path the U.S. Wackle elements took under his leadership. Well, this is where the rubber meets the road. This Roger Pearson guy. Um, this is the guy who bragged that he'd helped Joseph Mengele escape prosecution. Uh, the the man whom the post-war revival of paganism owes so much to. Uh, the man to whom post-war neo-Nazism owes so very much. But I repeat myself. Uh, the Pearson takeover of Wackle is is where things get really weird. Um, and this guy, Roger Pearson, was almost like an American version of Julius Evola, the uh, Osama bin Laden of post. Is he American or was he British? Except he wasn't American. He was actually British. But Just, he, did his, he did his best work in America, and he still lives here. This is true. This is true. <clears throat> um. Talk about a behind the bastards episode. Yeah. Uh, By the way, best is in quotations there, Keith. Yeah. 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 Um, (laughs) It's with Roger Pearson that the U.S. Wackle people just dispense with the bullshit and just embrace, you know, its old right self for real. Um, He very quickly became a huge liability to the U.S. Wackle guys, and it was it was like some neo-pagan Nordic version of the Techos took over as like the Wackle rep for the U.S. and then the whole World League itself. So let's talk about Roger Pearson for a minute. Um, <clears throat> there's some websites that talk about him. There's some books. Goodrich, Good, Goodrick Clark's Black Sun, for example, Kevin Coogan's Dreamer of the Day, which I'm sad to say I have to reread now. Uh, William Turner's uh, funding of 
scientific racism. It's not William Turner. What is that guy's name? Was it Tucker? Yeah, Tucker. The, book, the, the funding of scientific racism. And then, uh, of course, Inside the League um, holds up real good because the, the Anderson guys, they really had the uh, <clears throat> the testicular fortitude to go there when few others would. In fact, they actually interviewed Pearson for their book. So that's got to be one of the few. Um, so there's he's a complicated uh, genius of a person. Um, he was uh, an anthropologist and uh, a respected anthropologist. He wrote um, some mainstream texts in that field that are used in universities. And he was a professor himself in, I think, South Carolina and Mississippi and in Montana. Um, <clears throat> you might have said he was from the ethnography or the cultural branches of, of anthropology. And, and those specialties were the basis of his uh profligate uh writing on eugenics and race science and he did a lot of that and and so if i follow all that by saying he headed up the journal of indo-european studies you can kind of see where it's going here uh but but then there's the pearson uh, roger pearson the anti-communist writer and economist and he was on the uh he moved to the u.s in the 60s right but but he was on the editorial board in the 70s for uh, the Heritage Foundation, which got started in 73, by the way. Uh, and he was on the editorial board for the American Security Council. And he started this kind of think tank called the Council on American Affairs around the middle of the decade. And this became the American Wackle chapter when the ACWF guys did their K Fabian oh, we quit, you know, uh, too many Nazis. And so he stepped into the vacuum with his Council on American Affairs. And this was very different was, than all the other like, groups. Look, you guys thought the Tecos were Nazis. Well, I'm going to show you guys what Nazism really is, essentially. Yeah, he's like, how could how could Mexicans be Nazis? I mean, like, <laughs> we're going back to the old country. Uh but but the Council on American Affairs was not like some, you know, crappy Lee Edwards, Vigory, Liebman letterhead organization with fundraising appeals and all this kind of stuff. This guy, you know, he had his journals and he had his day job. He had a, he, he had all this scholarly stuff that he was involved in. He wasn't trying to raise a bunch of money. Um, he, the, the Council on American Affairs had a um, uh, like a scholarly journal called the Journal for Social, Political, and Economic Studies. Uh, and if you look for that, like on the internet, you'll see it come up in like the citations for like doctoral dissertations coming out of, of like West Point for like military people. You know, it's like stuff about the strategic importance of South Africa or the, the Panama Canal and, you know, not even getting into the race stuff, you know, just like strategy type documents for, you know, so um, it wasn't really a propaganda outlet so much as like highbrow scholarship. And then there's Roger Pearson, the neo-Nazi, neo-pagan, liberty lobby, old right propagandist and white nationalist agitator who, again, just happened to take on the mantle of the American and worldwide Wackle leadership just after Wackle had lost its American chapter on account of them being too Nazi. Um, there is a, a rare document a dossier written up by a group that was called the 
Association of Nordic and Military, Nordic War and Military Veterans, and it's called the Blue Document. And this is referred to and it's quoted in Inside the League. And I am lucky enough to have procured a copy. And it was written like in the late 70s or mid to late 70s. And so I'm going to do my we've read the documents bit here and just read you a quote from it. In 1956, the then Mr. Roger Pearson started to publish a journal called The Northern World, which at first pretended to be cultural and non-political, but was clearly based upon totalitarian, racist, and anti-Semitic thinking and ideas. In 1957, he started an organization called The Northern League for the purpose of solving politically the problems discussed in the journal. The secretariat was in Dunfermline in Scotland. The Northern League established contacts with national socialist Nazi organizations in Sweden and Denmark. In Germany, its counterpart was the journal Nation Europa. The Northern League was a racist mythicist group for its first conference in Detmold in July of 1959 in Germany. A Swedish neo-Nazi foundation, the notorious Karlberg Foundation, gave financial support. When when I in end quote end quote um, when I referred to the the weird ACWF resolution and they were talking about the this World Union of National Socialists being the the tie that binds all these grouplets of uh, Nazis around the world. Um, they're referring to George Lincoln Rockwell's baby, the World Union of National Socialists, um, and that group kind of formed right around the same time. And in Europe, it had some of the same people that were involved in the Northern League, as well as the World Union of National Socialists. Uh, there was, um, if you look up something called the European Social Movement or the Malmo Group or Malmo International, it's all kind of like shades of the same group. And it's it's basically trying to like reorganize um you know, Nazis after after World War II. Um, so Pearson, you know, way back when the World Anti-Communist Conference for Freedom and Liberation, their meeting in Mexico City in 58 and the Liberty Lobby is getting going in 58 and Lincoln, George Lincoln Rockwell's American Nazi Party is getting going. Pearson's over in Europe organizing uh, these neo-Volkish, neo-pagan, you know, kind of ideas and using it to drive uh, politics. And uh, I <clears throat> can't find it. It's on my old computer, but somewhere I found some like Northern League publication where they've got like the sheet music for some kind of weird hymn, you know, and they're kind of got like little map, little like uh, diagram recipes for like doing kind of pagan ritual, group ritual things, nothing like crazy or dark, but just like, trying to like really seriously revive paganism and like this is how you do a a Samhain ritual and you should have your calendar marked for these dates of the year and do this on this holiday and this on that holiday and there's a lot of fluffy bunny pagan wiccan you know kind of tarot cards and crystals uh type folks out there that would probably uh balk at the idea that uh a lot of their shtick goes back to people like Roger Pearson, but uh, too bad because uh, he he did a lot to to make that happen. Um, so, in in that regard, he's he's often his name comes up in the context of William 
Wilhelm Landig and his little Evotus cell, uh, sometimes called the Vienna Circle or the, the Landig Group. There's this really crazy blogger guy that, I mean, he used to be a blogger. Now he's more like a podcaster and an author, and his name is Recluse. I don't know if you heard of him, but um, <laughs> he's, he's got a blog called viceupview.blogspot.com. And he was writing about uh, there's a series on his blog called uh, The Sun That Never Sets. And it's about the the the, uh, the Landig group and the Vienna Circle. Or maybe I have that backwards. But uh, maybe re- maybe Recluse has heard of him. <laughs> but you can you can read all about that uh, there. But yeah, um, I, I, I'm well versed myself. Right. So so Landig was one of these main guys who really built up and propagated the whole Nazi UFO mythology. And he wrote novels about ultima thule or thule however you say it and making the black sun symbol like a a popular hieroglyph amongst the far right now now that we have like fascist rallies in the united states which is totally awesome uh you can see like the shields or the flags of these guys and they'll have this black sun you know symbol and it's made out of these runes and it's basically like a visual dog whistle of a swastika it's kind of like the post-war, like not swastika, but really actually it's a swastika. Yeah, it's anyway. Really, it's really interesting because, I mean, really a lot of the post-war kind of Nazi occult tropes go back to the Landig group. And I mean, almost all of this stuff started as fiction. Uh, it's really not, you know, understood. But again, it's kind of another uh, example of what the CCRU referred to as hyperstition or, you know, theory fiction, something to that effect. Uh, essentially, we're fiction. Yeah used uh the fringes of your imagination comes uh ideas that shape the actual real world right yes 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 maybe one day we can get into the uh personage of miguel serrano that that that's a study all in itself oh yeah well it's actually going to mention him that's a chilean uh vampire Oh, one thing I wanted to point out, though, right quick, too, is I believe Landig was also a member of the austrian chapter of wackle uh during this era too wasn't he Yes, he was. He headed up the Austrian section beginning in 1970. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm bringing up Landig and the Landig Circle because it goes with Pearson and his like culture making, you know, because these guys like made culture. They didn't revive shit because it's thousands of years ago. I mean, they could take these old things and try to, you know, juice them up and everything. But, you know, the ancient Greeks didn't really talk about flying saucers. And the second coming of Hitler and this thing that hurts to say it out loud, esoteric Hitlerism of people like Satri B. Devi and the vampire guy, uh, Miguel Serrano and all that stuff that uh, Goodrich Clark talked about in his Black Sun book. And, yeah, it, it gets it you, in Black Sun. Wackle appears. Why? Because of Landig being the guy running the Austrian section starting in 1970 when he wasn't writing books about Nazi flying saucers. And uh, yeah, so um, makes that 74 resolution about anti-Semitism just look like the weak sauce that it is because like this guy's been in the mix for like four years at that point. But I digress. Um, so so it's the mid-70s and the K Fabians of the American Council for World Freedom have vacated and now Pearson is there to fill the space. And and it becomes his Council on American Affairs becomes the the wackle chapter for the next few years. And he's busy because he's still writing all of these strategy white papers and he's editing Heritage Foundation publications and he's giving a platform to people like Ed Fuellner and, and all these Mooney and Heritage and ASC types. But he's also reactivating 
getting the band back together of the old Northern League. And he's basically like every region around the world has its wackle umbrella regional orgs. You, you know, you got the CAL, you got APACL, and in uh, you even have one in Eastern Europe, the European Freedom Council. We don't what we don't have is one for Western Europe. And in Western Europe at the time, there was this idea called Eurocommunism, which is what the gladiators were bombing out of existence surgically. Um, hey, you know, hey, Gabe, like, I, I thought the yeah. European uh, Freedom Council was West Europe for the most part, and then ABN it, covered East Europe. Or am I or am I a little? Uh, ABN was part of the European Freedom Council, <clears throat> and it kind of was more. I mean, it had Ivan Matteo Lombardo in it. It had Susan Labine in it. It had some Northern Europeans, the Ole Kraft guy. But it, the way Pearson puts it, and he's quoted in the blue document, this is what he's saying. He's saying, we don't really have a proper Western regional outfit for Wackle. Okay. I, might have, I might have have it written down and quoted here, but that I was reading the blue document because, you know, it's fun uh, this week. And uh, But anyway, uh, so... He said they have they, the European Freedom Council kind of failed to bring about the true European regional org, but but um, apparently he felt that they hadn't. So so he's like the Raimundo Guerrero of Europe now. He's heading up like the Tecos of Europe, you know, recommending for acceptance and writing letters of recommendation for all these new wackle chapters from across East, North, West, Southern Europe, and throwing big time shade on the French and British. And other more like mainstream countries that had flirted with Euro communism and socialism a little too much. And, um, you know, so Euro Wackle, you got Schnitzel, CAL, you got Milanesa, you know, it's the same. It's fried meat, you know, it's the same kind of weird, weird religious underpinning of Nazi anti communism and all that kind of stuff, right? So he put, he's putting together this conference in 78 that's going to be the biggest PR scandal in Wackle history. And it was covered by a reporter named Paul Valentine in the Washington Post. And the name of the article was called The Fascist Specter Behind the World Anti-Red League. And it says in the blue document that the West European guys had to gain admission by emergency intervention of Ku Ching Kang. Because... Just like the Techos had tried to do with the British earlier, Pearson's doing the same thing, trying to freeze out the the normies, the muggles, you know. And and the, these Nazis need more breathing room. We don't need the Stuart Smiths in the in the room messing it up for us. So so a few years ago I did these FOIAs with the CIA and the FBI using the keywords of the like the main wackle orgs. And I got some interesting stuff from the FBI, especially about Wackle, and even though they redacted a bunch of the names, it's pretty obvious that it's Stuart Smith that's the guy reaching out to the FBI. And here's what he's saying, and I, I wrote down some quotes from my FOIA documents. So this is uh, this is the juice right here. We, we read the documents, right? So he tells the FBI in 78 that in all of its literature, Wackle claims to be non-governmental, but that's a blatant lie. Wackle's nothing more than the extension of the information department of the government of Taiwan. In addition, it's financed by Korea, the Philippines, Thailand, and Saudi Arabia. And then he says, quote, after four and a half years of research, 
I have established that the organization is composed of people who are abysmally ignorant and primitive, utterly corrupt and completely fake. Most of its members subscribe to the theory that international communism is controlled by a, quote, world Jewish conspiracy. It is, in fact, an anti-Semitic, racialist and fascist international. And then he says, when it last met in Washington in 1974, a motion was proposed demanding the overthrow of the government of the United States by means of a military coup d'etat. Now, that would have made it the 74 conference in D.C., and I'm guessing it was the Tecos that proposed that, but it wasn't in uh, Dobriansky's collection. But anyway, and then the next page is the FBI's like internal review of, of this letter they'd gotten from Stuart Smith. And I'll read what they said. Uh, quote, he now indicates his lawsuit is in Seoul, South Korea. A review of complainants report indicates dubious value with references to the protocols of the elders of Zion and links to the Mexican secret society tacos in quotes. <laughs> no further action recommended unless other information says so. I don't know why the FBI was it because of Stuart Smith's accent or was it the FBI guy writing it up? I don't know how, but Tecos became tacos. And I just thought that was funny. So I'm throwing it in there. Um, but he's he's writing to warn them, the feds, that they're about to have this conclave of old Nazis and terrorists that are like too right wing even for him coming to town. And he was totally right to warn them because it was a it was a doozy. OK, so this 78 conference, like the, the gang's all here. Right. Um, the Italian neo-fascist MSI party led by Almirante, uh, an actual former Mussolini brown shirt. He's there. And his group gets formally accepted at last into Wackle at that conference. Um, the Tecos are there, and their boys are handing out copies of the complot against the church and, and the replica Teco rag. Uh, the Saudis are there, and they're handing out free copies of the protocols. Uh, William Pierce, the American Nazi guy who later wrote the Turner Diaries, which was like Tim McVeigh's inspiration for Oklahoma City, he's there. Um, Pearson's old friend, partner in crime. He was also one of the major people to uh, promote the whole Nazi punk thing and also his own sort of uh, peculiar brand of uh, esoteric Nazism as well. Jeez, man. Yeah, if I can throw something in, he also wrote Serpent's Walk, which I think is his most important book, bar none. Walking the Snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, Dave Emery's done a whole series, Walking the Snake. Yep. Uh, yeah. Um, but but Willis Cardo, the Liberty Lobby guy, actually helps Pearson put this conference on. He helped put it together. So this is what I'm talking about, about the old right, the the fire up the ovens uh, wing of the, of the right wing is literally putting this conference on. And, and Cardo was another guy who had done a lot to preserve the uh, legacy of Francis Parker Yaki, um, another yeah. um big proponent of a kind of occult fascism, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And speaking of occult fascists, you've, you've also, uh, so there's, there's a certain point where Pearson's up on the stage talking to the, you know, to everybody. And he sees these, uh, Nazi guys, um, national States rights party guys are handing out copies of their rag called the Thunderbolt. And he tells them apparently through the microphone, that they need to leave. And he says, quote, not that I don't sympathize with what you're doing, but don't embarrass me and cut my throat. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah. And then I want to also mention that this article by Valentine, it, it says that the, the, you know, the notification of Wackle through the 70s that caused the mainstream types to, to pull back. And here's what he says, quote, conspicuously absent from this year's Wackle conference as either delegates or official observers, for example, were representatives of the John Birch Society, the Unification Church of Korean Evangelist, Sum Young Moon and Lee Edwards American Council for World Freedom. Uh, Edwards organization based in Washington was once the principal American constituent member in Wackle, but pulled out in 1975 over initial reports of anti-Semitism in Wackle having surfaced. So when you've lost the John Birch Society and the Moonies, you know, yikes. But thinking back to what Don was saying earlier about the these guys having to lay low, you know, because of the Fraser Commission. Right. This conference is happening in 78. And that's right at this period where you're saying that Moon and company were like trying to chill out. So maybe that had something to do with why they didn't show up. I don't know. But um, but finally, in the article, I just just to mention, just to give you a little Pearson flavor here, uh, talks about Pearson having written about advocating, quote, the need to maintain genetic purity through artificial insemination and sperm banks supplied only by the fittest members of the race. End quote. This is like total William Shockley, uh, Jeffrey Epstein stuff, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so they would set up that sperm bank for the, um, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize winners, what, like a couple of years later in the early 1980s. Um, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, you've written about this. So just just a disaster, right? Uh, the whole thing is just bad. It, it's a big fat confirmation for anybody paying attention that the the hardcore of anti-communism, you know, turn out, turns out to be full-on Nazi creeps. So, uh, in, you know, so the Asians had long wanted the United States to be fully engaged with Wackle. It was like the Holy Grail. They'd been after it since 54. And then they finally get it in the 70s. And by the end of the decade, they're literally telling Roger Pearson, okay, just serve out your one-year term. And then leave, <laughs> step down, leave the league, take your Council on American Affairs with you. And so it must have really been quite a scandal for Kuching Kang and his APACL chiefs to ask the Americans to get out of Wackel. But that's what they did. So not great. Yeah. Roger Pearson. There you go. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I basically <laughs> pulled the veil back and showed unabashedly that the league was basically nothing but, yeah, I mean, fascism and this just weird, you know, I mean, occult ideology, um, you know, often personified by literal cults and secret societies, and um, it never really went away. They just became a little more subtle in the Reagan years, essentially, but yeah, just amazing it really is um, yeah and it's like i don't know what you expected because i mean the, the the hardcore anti you know fascist people were communists and socialists and we the americans learned that very well and actually employed a bunch of them to help win the war in world war ii against fascism and you know it's like yeah well the other side guess who turns out to be your most hardcore anti-communist yeah they're a bunch of fascists and nazis i mean it's like it's that's i don't know what else you thought you were going to get right um but they you know over the next few years they would sing lab would take over and 
they, they had their Pearson's last conference was in Asuncion, Paraguay that Don talked about a few minutes ago, which literally has a Chiang Kai-shek Boulevard in the middle of town because the Taiwanese helped them build like a world-class presidential palace in Paraguay. So talk and, about leaving your signature. Talk about anyway, that's, that's enough. That's enough out yeah. of me. Well, it's also too, I think important to emphasize as well, just sort of the, uh, you know, with guys like Pearson Pierce, uh, I'm assuming Landig was probably there somewhere too. I mean, these guys also just had an enormous role in shaping this, you know, bizarre mythos, um, and a lot of neo-Nazi circles um, that, you know, become frighteningly mainstream now. I mean, so much of this stuff, which was just really just other LARPing by these guys, is now accepted as dogma. I mean, not just by neo-Nazi undergrounds, but I mean, a huge chunk of conspiracy theorists and so forth. And it's been, you know, incorporated into all kinds of things, movies, video games, etc., etc. Um and again, you know, you can see this clear lineage going back to these 1970s Wackles chapters. Um, of course, you also have Cardo in there who did his own uh, bit of myth making as well. So, yeah, that's another kind of crucial component to this, especially given the enormous role that some of these political warfare academies played within Wackle as well. Um, so, yes, the whole thing is just insidious on so many levels. Anyway, to wrap up, let's turn to uh, one particular incident uh, in which Wackel inadvertently dropped the mask. Well, we I guess there were certainly other incidences where they dropped the mask, such as the 78 conference that we've uh, already thoroughly addressed at this point. But here it kind of brings it all together in just a horrifying way in how, you know, what this really looks like when it was um, carried out in real life and not just... Um, being spoken about in these conferences. Uh, it's a little incident commonly referred to as the uh, the cocaine coup in Bolivia, which took place in the summer of 1980. I, you know, had everything, Nazis, drug traffickers, arms traffickers, uh, these, you know, secret army stay behind things. And just, yeah, it was unbelievable. So, Don, what was the uh, Mooney's role in the coup d'etat uh, and how does it relate to Wackle? Yeah, let's bring this home. Um, as I've already mentioned, I mean, we have some really compelling source documentation, you know, independent journalist material, et cetera, et cetera that ba basically na nails the Moon organization to the wall as, as far as being a part of the Condor operation on some level. Um, and I, I think that what took place in Olivia, Bolivia, excuse me. Um, I know someone named Olivia, so that's how that happened. Um, so what took place in Bolivia in 1980, um, you would have to say that that falls right under the MO of what Condor was trying to accomplish. All the telltale signs are there, as you already alluded to, Recluse. Now, if we go back a few years before the coup to 75, that's when Hugo Banzer, Bolivia's military dictator uh, from 71 to 78, he initiated what's called the Banzer Plan. And it appears to me that the details within that quote-unquote plan, uh, a plan of action against leftist elements within Bolivia, <clears throat> that Banzer Plan was simply just a predecessor to what got drawn up the following year, 
in 76 when Operation Condor got going officially. Then <clears throat> going to 78, the same year that Roger Pearson, you know, is coming into his own, so forth and so on, as Keith just touched on so eloquently, um, the bands are planned for dealing with leftist undesirables. Uh, that Banzer op was fully incorporated into Operation Condor, and at the 1979 Wackel conference, there certainly must have been talk about how the leftist government in Bolivia had to go ASAP. We need to remember that Banzer had to step down in '78, <clears throat> and his support network was just chomping at the bit to take over the country again. So what I'm getting to here is that the political climate Bolivia found itself in going into the year 1980, the country was ripe for what ended up happening. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, <clears throat> I don't think I need to get into a lot of deta detail about the coup itself with all the players like <clears throat> Klaus Barbie, Stefano Della Chaie, and others. Suffice it to say that it was a brutal, awful chapter in Bolivia's history. And there's no doubt the ramifications of that coup were to be felt later in the Iran-Contra scandal, which we'll uh, come to in our upcoming Wackle show, no doubt, you know, dealing with the 1980s. But I do want to read... Don, can I just interrupt real quick? Cause, uh sure. I heard they got a lot of help from a worldwide organization whose honorary president was named Coup. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, another one of those little synchronicity things. Yes. Yeah, you, you got to love it. <clears throat> so, um, but, you know, I do want to read a couple of excerpts from an article written by Kai Herman, uh, a, a German journalist. He was assigned to go undercover and track the activities uh, track and write on the activities of Klaus Barbie. Um, and for those who don't know, I mean, Barbie was the Nazi war criminal known as the Butcher of Lyon for his hideous acts perpetrated against French war prisoners, etc. So, you know, yes, Kai Herman. Uh, just to interject, yes, one of his uh, favorite, yes, methods of interrogation was to. Um, hook up, um, what is it, jumper cables, I believe, to the testicles of these uh, prisoners, and then slowly uh, increase the electrical charge so that their testicles were uh, slowly cooked um, over the course of the interrogation. That was um, wow. one of the, uh, the techniques that um, the U.S. intelligence community thought would be invaluable, invaluable in the uh, struggle against international communism in the post-war years. Uh, I'm sorry if this is a little off color, but I, I would hate to be the kid born from the sperm that came out after that. Uh, sorry. Um, you know, yeah, there, uh, <laughs> yeah, that that really wasn't even a factor, as I understand it. <laughs> after, yeah, he was finished. There was pretty much no going back. Uh, uh, right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, yes. We're, we, we, are de we are definitely uh, digressing here. So. Uh, so anyway, being a little bit more, uh, I, well, we are being serious here, but Kai Herman, he actually risked his life to get this story. And I'm, I'm totally indebted to him uh, for exposing the Moon Organization's connection 
to the post-war Nazi diaspora. So, Kai, if you can hear me, uh, my, my hat's off to you, buddy. Um, so, you know, the only question I, I, I really wish I had an answer to uh, as we're kind of wrapping up here um, is why was there uh, or was there a direct connection between the anti-Castro terrorist network that Bohe Pak got involved with uh, and the network that Barbie and others had created in Bolivia. In other words, how do we go from what I found in those documents that I read from to Bohe Pak's activities in Bolivia? I mean, there's got to be some document out there, you would think, that can connect these dots. I, I just haven't found it yet. I mean, I would suspect it might be related to the drug trade effectively, because um, obviously, you know, there was a lot of that going on with Barbie. I mean, he effectively had set himself up as a drug lord. But uh, uh, Stefano, the black bombardier, had apparently also been moving uh, cocaine for Pinochet in Chile, too, to uh, raise funding. Um you know, I mean, there's, uh, if I believe there was even more direct Mooney ties to the Pinochet regime as well, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean. Uh, yeah, basically through, you know, the rising tide, you know, the publication for FLF. Uh, that's about all I I have as far as that goes. Okay. So, uh, so anyway, with no further ado, let me read briefly from Herman's article. Um, it says here, quote. Carboni was a member of a group supporting the Italian neo-fascist terrorist Stefano Della Chaie. The group had come to Chile in 1976. Remember, that's, that's when Operation Condor gets officially started. Uh, so start again. The group had come to Chile in 1976. Oh, and, and the meeting that, that formed Operation Condor was held in Chile. Okay, so that brings more emphasis here. So the group had come to Chile in 1976 and had taken on special assignments for the intelligence organization DINA. Barbie had brought the Italian Carboni to Bolivia at the end of 1976. Early in 1978, Barbie assigned his colleague Carboni <laughs> to take up contact with the leader of the Italian execution commandos, Stefano Della Chaie, and to recruit him for a mission in Bolivia. Argentinian intelligence officers and German soldiers who came to La Paz, meaning La Paz, Bolivia, they reported to Dr. Alfredo Condia, the Bolivian leader, of the World Anti-Communist League, an organization close to the CIA with headquarters in Taiwan. Candia then brought them to Schneider's Clock Shop. The owner of German descent likes to show his comrades a picture in which Hitler's party secretary, Martin Bormann, who had allegedly repeat, allegedly vanished in 1945, is seen to be, is, is to be seen in a monk's habit in La Paz. Well, how nice is that? That was me, of course. Barbie 
wanted to launch a national socialist government from the planned coup. The leading rightists of the Bolivian military became members of a secret lodge, Tule. During lodge meetings, Barbie lectured underneath swastikas. Barbie's closest colleagues organized the Nationalist Socialist Fighters Group, the Bolivia Hoven, Young Bolivia, modeled after the example of the SA, you know, Hitler's SA. The Bolivian military push of July 17, 1980, was almost exclusively directed and organized by foreigners. The only important Bolivian players were General Luis Mesa and Colonel Luis Arce Gomez, who had been airmarked as junta leaders. The first official well-wisher who visited the newly coronated President Garcia was the acting leader of the Moonies, Colonel Bo Hipok. It was not until 1983 that the Bolivian Ministry of the Interior and Bolivian journalists determined that the Moon sect, as well as others, had invested about $4 million into the preparation of the coup. Membership lists of the political moon organization, CAUSA, were found. At the top of the list were the names of almost all the leading military personnel who, at the same time, had been honoring the swastika in Barbie's Lodge. Even leader Garcia had been converted to the Moonies for a time. End quote. I will stop wow. there. Can I just mention one thing? I got we got we got to wrap this up, but <clears throat> that crucial year of '76, where they're starting Condor in uh, in Chile, right? Right. M- remember, I just made the connection. That's the same year where this new Committee for Inter-American Security, that's going to be Reagan's foreign policy for Latin America think tank, is meeting in D.C. And Marvin Liebman and his Chilean friends, whatever, American Chilean Council is inviting these guys, right? So that's happening in the United States at the same time Condor is officially rolling out. That was was kind of like a reputable, you know, overworld kind of phase for essentially what was going on with Condor. Uh, Because, I mean, again, you know, these guys like Liebman, you know, tried to make it seem like they were uh, keeping the Nazi elements at bay. But, I mean, Pinochet was actually using uh, Delachaye, who was, you know, a full-blown neo-fascist, one-time follower of Julius Evoli, uh, to carry out Condor operations in Italy. They had that uh, attempted assassination on the one general um, that failed because they did not use a small-caliber pistol effectively. Um but yeah, it was, you know, it was just really amazing. Um, yeah. I'm going to finish up with a little high weirdness, by the way, but I'll let you guys finish your your little uh, input. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. yeah so so anyway, we, we heard, you know, we heard Wackle in that excerpt. We heard the mention of Causa. OK, you know, and for all intents and purposes, Causa succeeded <clears throat> FLF and. Mm-hmm. 
allowed Neil Salonen to quote unquote retire from his role as the top American slash Western anti-communist movie, a Mooney, excuse me. Yeah, this is, this is like a movie. Jeez. That unofficial title of like top anti-communist uh, American Mooney got transferred, at least in my mind, to Thomas Ward. He usually goes by Tom. And if we had continued on in that Kai Herman article, we would have read about how Ward and Barbie work together. So, you know, so that basically, you know, answers answers the question. But but here here's my antidote. Uh, you know, this is going to leave everybody scratching, scratching their head. And I, I still can't wrap my brains around it either. OK, so so Tom Ward uh, got married a couple of years uh, after the coup as a part of a mass wedding in Madison Square Garden. Uh, there were more than 4,000 uh, Moonies that participated at that wedding. And yes, I was there. I was one of those married couples. But anyway, the most confounding thing uh, about the wife that Moon supposedly chose for Ward was that her family comes from this long line of prominent politicians. Her name is Alexa Ward. Uh, I'm sorry, Alexa Fish is her maiden name. She goes by Ward now, of course. So Alexa Fish and her great grandfather, Hamilton Fish III, was a Hitler or Nazi sympathizer. Okay. And get this. I hope everyone is sitting down. I'm sure I'm sure they are. Her brother, Alexa Fish's brother, who was also named Hamilton Fish, he was one of the executive producers of a documentary on the life and times of Klaus Barbie. Now, what kind of synchronicity or high strangeness, high strangeness are we talking about here? I guess that's why I do these podcasts with you, Recluse. Uh, it's the byline of your show, synchronicities, high strangeness, in all its many forms. What else can I say? So I think I've brought it home with that. Yeah, that's really amazing, Don. Um of course, Hamilton Fish III, too, was uh, also a uh, good friend of um, uh, General Paul Gaynor and Morse Allen, who oversaw Project Artichoke for the CIA. Um, all kinds of high strangeness there. And um, General Gaynor was also the longtime handler for Lee Pennington, a leading figure in the American Security Council, uh, just to sort of show how incestuous all of this stuff really was. Um, but yes, this was effectively the state of Wackle by the end of the 1970s. They had played an underlining role in almost setting up a full-blown Nazi regime in Bolivia. I mean, you already effectively had that in Chile and to some extent Argentina by this point in time as well. But in the case of Bolivia, it would be essentially controlled by a literal um, former Nazi and Klaus Barbary and several of the other ex-Nazis that were also uh, working in that, uh, what was that charming group around him, the Fiancés of Death or something like that, that they had named themselves. Um, but yes, it was... Death, death squads showing up in ambulances. Mm, yes. Oh, they're trying to get medical attention. There's an ambulance and then a bunch of guys with like Mac-10s jump out and 
yeah anyway um yes it was horrendous um the regime was not in bolivia was not allowed to stand for very long at least um you know, I don't think because anyone in the U.S., especially with the incoming Reagan administration by that point in time, had any real, you know, objectives to Barbary so much as that just the fact that it was rather embarrassing to have a literal ex-Nazi, um, you know, effectively sitting up a colonial empire in Bolivia that, you know, is the kind of thing that the Soviet Union's um, PR specialists would have gotten a lot of mileage out of, unfortunately, for Reagan. Um Otherwise, it would have been a staunch anti-communist regime in Bolivia, nonetheless. Yeah. So anyway, yes, this was the just whole mindset that prevailed and, you know, what was coming forward at the time um, with Condor. We already, of course, Keith and I talked about this in the last episode with the Tecos, but um, the strategy of tension had begun in Mexico concurrently as well. Um, People think that it was largely restricted to the massacre at the football stadium in 68, but... um, you know, this is nonsense. Uh, it was ongoing throughout the 1970s, and uh, there were far more people who were murdered as part of this uh, than what is officially acknowledged, uh, which I think is only, what, a few dozen or maybe a few hundred at best. Um, Can I throw something in there about that Mexican dirty war? Go for it. I, I did not mention this, and I, I've been kicking myself ever since we did the Tecos episode because we were talking about how they got away with it, and it's this forgotten thing. They uh, the Mexican government last year uh, opened this kind of like truth and reconciliation uh, type restorative justice thing where they declassified a bunch of um, the documents and stuff. Um, so it's it's a little I wouldn't call it a happy ending, but it's a little little more justice than we gave the Mexican government credit for when we did the Tecos episode. They actually. um are trying to make amends with their own dark past as of, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever. So hats off to them on that. All right. At least they've finally begun the process somewhat of bringing to light this. Um, But yes, I mean, the whole thing in Mexico, the dirty war there was ongoing. I mean, it was horrendous. Of course, as we've talked about, uh, we had the coup in Chile uh, that brought Pinochet to power. And uh, this in turn led to the launching of Operation Condor a couple of years later, uh, which just effectively brought this whole you know, platform of just these death squads and so forth, carrying out um, uh, assassinations effectively all over the Southern Cone. And then later the world, uh, it really became a model for what the United States has later done in the global war of terror in many ways. Uh, But it all got started, Um, you know, these various dirty wars in the Southern Cone in Mexico, and this would really become effectively the model that the Reagan administration would uh, embrace to roll back communism during the 1980s. Uh, That's something that we will get into in the next installment, but I mean, already the body count was fairly significant uh, and it was horrendous. This is something you have to keep in mind with with Wackel and discussing its legacy um, and certainly other aspects as well, least of all the bizarre esoteric Nazism um, and other occult philosophies that were also being, you know, refined in the 1970s with Wackel uh, as an underlining factor. You know, this kind of stuff has become disturbingly mainstream in the 21st century, and in some ways it may even be a more enduring and insidious legacy of Wackel than some of these other things that we've discussed. Who knows how it will ultimately play out uh, in the era of QAnon. 
Uh, but it uh, is awesome. tell you tell you how it played out in the eighties. You know what goes good with esoteric Hitlerism? Crack cocaine. Mm? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't wait for the next episode. I need another hit, recluse. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, all going to be coming out, and you know, again, this is why we do these things because these topics are so vitally important, especially with the era that we are going into. And uh, I'm so fortunate to have you guys, Keith and Don, here with me. And um, the next episode, we are also going to be getting the whole band together uh, for the final one. So Moss will be joining us, as will Brisson. It's going to be great, guys. Uh, we're all very excited about it and looking forward to it. And um, I guess with that, I will sign off for now. Uh, everybody, thank you as always for tuning in and good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>